Good morning, everyone from Washington, D.C. Poppy is off this week. My friend Pamela Brown Great is to be here, here with me. Thanks for joining us. We have a very busy news day. Let's get things started with five things to know for this Tuesday, July 11th, 2023. Right now, President Biden is in Lithuania to kick off a high stakes NATO summit. Ukraine's future set to dominate the agenda, including its bid to join NATO and its push for security guarantees. New overnight, Donald Trump's legal team filing a request for a lengthy delay to the start of his trial in the classified documents case. His lawyers saying they want to wait until after the 2024 election. And catastrophic flooding hitting parts of the Northeast overnight. Officials say more than 50 people had to be rescued in Vermont. Some areas received more than eight inches of rain in a single day. Northwestern University has fired its football coach, Pat Fitzgerald. This firing coming after an investigation looking into alleged hazing within the football program. And happening today, senators will get a classified briefing on artificial intelligence. Now, this will be the first ever briefing of its kind. We're told the director of national intelligence will be attending. CNN This Morning starts right now. We're going to get you straight to the news because the news is happening right now. We're going to take you to Lithuania. These are live pictures from Vilnius. Just moments from now, President Biden is set to speak at that critical NATO summit with allied leaders as the war in Ukraine rages on with no end in sight. The high stakes meeting comes after the huge announcement that Turkey will no longer block Sweden from joining the alliance. It's a giant strategic blow to Vladimir Putin. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says the U.S. is coming into this summit with, quote, full, with a full, full head of steam following the Sweden announcement. He says the allies will also discuss a path for Ukraine to possibly join NATO in the future. We're going to start with CNN White House correspondent Arlette Sines, who's live on the ground there. And Arlette, what exactly heading into this high stakes summit is the White House hoping to achieve? Well, Phil, President Biden is hoping to emerge from this summit with a strengthened and united NATO that will ultimately disappoint Russian President Vladimir Putin. Now, any minute now, we will see President Biden alongside NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg. And this meeting between the two men really comes on the heels of a big win for both of them after Turkey announced a stunning reversal to approve Sweden's accession into NATO. Turkey had been blocking uh, Sweden's entrance into NATO for a little over a year. And the fact that Sweden uh, will very soon be joining NATO really speaks to an expanded NATO alliance that in part has been driven by President Biden. Now, President Biden uh, spoke with Turkish President Erdogan as he flew from the U.S. to Europe uh, over the weekend on Air Force One. And he made clear in that call that he wanted Sweden to be accepted into NATO as soon as possible. We are expecting to see President Biden and Erdogan hold a bilateral meeting a bit later today. But another big question facing leaders at this summit is the future of Ukraine and a possible pathway for Ukraine to one day join the NATO alliance. President Biden poured cold water on the idea of Ukraine joining the alliance at this moment as the war in Russia is ongoing. But Zelensky has been trying to seek some security guarantees and a clearer pathway to membership. This morning, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said that the U.S. and allies will be ready to send a positive signal to Ukraine when it comes to that possible uh, membership. Take a listen. 
there is consensus, including from Ukraine, that the question is not Ukraine and NATO now here at Vilnius. The question is, what's the pathway towards Ukraine's future membership? I think we can come to a good understanding about that here in Vilnius among all of the allies and with Ukraine. That's really what these next two days are about, and I think that's what will be reflected in the communique. Now, Sullivan also said that they don't have a timeline to outline right now for when Ukraine could join NATO. Uh, that is all something that could possibly come up as President Biden is set to meet here with Ukrainian President Zelensky at the NATO summit tomorrow. There have been some questions about whether Zelensky would be attending, but it will be a major show of unity as the president is once again trying to show that the NATO alliance is right behind Ukraine, ready to offer to that support in the face of that war against Russia. All right, Arlette Sines on the ground for us in Vilnius. Stay with us. Yeah, a lot going on this yeah. Tuesday morning. Let's bring in CNN National Security Analyst and former Deputy Director of National Intelligence, Beth Sanner, and CNN Political and National Security Analyst, David Sanger, will be joining us from Lithuania in just a moment. David, we'll talk to you soon. First to you, Beth. So short of Ukraine getting an invitation to NATO, which we know President Biden has ruled out, what does success look like for this NATO summit and, and for Ukraine? Well, the NATO summit itself, you know, is absolutely historic in terms of bringing in Finland and now bringing in Sweden. But I think at the end of the day, um, the real success here is having a positive view coming out, a view of inspiration and hope coming out, and not one of just utter disappointment that they haven't been able to thread that needle between Ukrainian not Ukraine not getting an invitation and Ukraine getting some kind of security guarantee. And that, that's really the issue on the table today. Um, David, I, I was heartened when I was listening to your stellar colleague Ben Hubbard last hour uh, talk about how he was surprised when Turkey signed off or at least cleared the pathway uh, for uh, Sweden to join the NATO summit, because I was surprised, assumed that people like you and Ben probably had some secret knowledge that all of this was happening. Uh, but it was fairly sh shocking yesterday that, that all of the kind of roadblocks seemed to be moved out of the way. For people maybe who aren't following this at such a granular level like we all are, explain what this means, both Turkey's decision and Erdogan's decision to clear the way here, but Sweden joining generally. Well, uh, Turkey had blocked Sweden because it believed that uh, it was promoting or at least allowing uh, what the Turks call terrorists and uh, what were in fact dissident groups that, uh, that uh, for a long time uh, you've seen uh, President Erdogan try to, try to put down. And he's been very sensitive about this. But it became clear over time that he had his price. And part of the price was that Turkey's not in the European Union. It looks like they will now get an accelerated way into the European Union. Uh, the U.S. Congress was not going to release F-16s to Turkey until they uh, approved Sweden. It now looks like he's going to get his F-16s. The other question is what other concessions were made to Turkey? Turkey's a very unusual NATO ally because it flirts with Putin left and right. It's bought a good deal of his weapons. It's done a fair bit of trade with them. And so there's always been a lot of tension back and forth. But this was a surprise. And it was a surprise to me and Ben, as well as, as uh, to you, Phil. So uh, you weren't missing anything. <laughs> and, and clearly, uh, Russia is, is not too pleased about this. We had the statement from a Russian defense official saying that Russia has gone from being a neutral country to now being an unfriendly one 
after this move. Turkey, yeah. Yeah, I mean, sorry, yeah, Turkey, absolutely. yes. Well, you know, it, it, Putin and Erdogan have such an interesting relationship. I mean, their forces have literally come to blows in Syria, and yet they seem to somehow figure out how to manage their symbiotic relationship. They have a lot of things that they depend upon each other, especially economically. Um, but Erdogan has done a number of things over the past few days, um, releasing the Azovstal uh, leaders, um, saying publicly that Ukraine should be a member of NATO and saying that he and Ukraine will agree to extend the Black Sea Grain Initiative even if Putin doesn't, and that he'll use Turkish warships to escort. So I would love to be a fly on the wall during the meeting between Erdogan and Putin when, when Putin is supposed to visit Turkey next month. It is going to be a doozy. But I think they'll work it out. I think they'll <laughs> work doozy. it out. <laughs> wow, that's optimistic. Arlette, I, I was reading the transcript of, of Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor's briefing with you guys earlier today. I'm, I'm interested now that uh, the Turkey-Sweden issue seems to have been resolved satisfactorily for the White House. Um, obviously, uh, NATO membership for Ukraine is always a significant issue uh, at this summit. When you talk to White House officials, what do you see as the fault lines? What are the key kind of deliverables they want out of this summit? Well, I think the overall theme that they want to project from this summit is that they are entering uh, with a more united and strengthened uh, NATO alliance that in part has really been uh, in some responsibility uh, from President Biden's leadership, given that he has uh, pushed forward when it comes to delivering a security assistance uh, to Ukraine, a push forward in trying to unite these countries over the course of the past year and a half of the war uh, against Russian President Vladimir Putin. And I think that they want Want to ensure and it's trying to stress this message that there aren't any fractures within the alliance. You know, you saw President Biden right before he was traveling over here announced that he was going to uh, send over cluster munitions, controversial weaponry to Ukraine that uh, counters some of the legal positions of other allies, as uh, many have signed on to this convention that bans that type of weaponry. But I think what's important uh, in that briefing, Sullivan was noting that you, even though legally these countries are opposed, they can't encourage the use of this type of weaponry, you haven't seen them out there uh, contradicting or criticizing President Biden directly for uh, that decision. That is another example of how they're trying to show that the allies are all together at this moment. Uh, that meeting with Zelensky uh, will be a really uh, high-stakes moment. It'll send a message not just to the alliance, but also to Russian President Vladimir Putin that the U.S. and its allies continue to be behind him. So I think that's another one of the key moments to watch here uh, at the summit over the next two days. And David, you, you heard Beth lay out some of the steps Turkey has taken um, in recent days and weeks against what Russia would want. What does that tell you in terms of how Turkey, Erdogan, views Russia and Putin right now, and how much does all of that weaken Putin? You know, the situation between Turkey and, uh, and Erdogan and Putin is similar to the one between Xi Jinping, the, uh, the Chinese leader, and Putin, which is to say that they've got a relatively tight relationship. As Beth explained before, it's a contradictory one. There are moments when they're on opposite sides of these issues. But it is born essentially of mutual need, different needs than they have with the Chinese. I think where the place where you're going to see this really play out may well be in the decision about what to do 
with Ukraine uh, getting admitted to, to NATO at some point in the future. You heard Jake Sullivan say it's not going to happen now. But you also heard President Biden in his interview with CNN last week say to Fareed Zakaria that he had two objections. And the first objection is that Ukraine isn't ready, that it's not yet a democratic country, it hasn't gone through the reforms. But the second one was that if you go in now during a war and bring Ukraine into NATO, then the United States is sort of directly at war with Russia because the core of NATO is a self a mutual defense pact. And that's really what's going to get in the way here. So you're going to have President Biden, Germany, opposing anything that sets too much of a timeline. You're going to have the Baltic states trying to say it's time for this to happen. Uh, and we're going to be talking to the British defense minister, Ben Wallace, later in the show about just that. All right. Arlette Sines, David Sanger, Beth Sander, thank you very much. Uh, stick around. We are still waiting for President Biden uh, to give some remarks at the top of this uh, summit. But first, we want to turn to the historic and catastrophic flash flooding in parts of the Northeast. It's being called a once-in-a-millennium rainfall. We're seeing the clear effects of that, particularly in Vermont, which is bracing for more after nearly two days of intense rain and impassable roadways and massive damage. Now, officials warning that two dams are expected to breach their spillways today. Already, more than 50 people needed to be rescued from their homes. CNN's Miguel Marquez is live in Montpelier, Vermont, one of the hardest-hit areas. Uh, Miguel, I've been watching the pictures and your reporting over the course of the last 12 or 13 hours. What can you tell us about what's happening on the ground there? Well, the good news is the sun is starting to come out and the rain has slowed down significantly. It rained for most of the night here in the Montpelier area, but this is the state capitol. If you look at that car down there, that was the water was about six or seven inches below that car earlier. I tried to get it. That's State Street. The capitol's about a block away from here. I couldn't get there. The water was flowing too fast through here. All of this through the Winooski River, which is right behind us. And we're going to just walk over here. I want to show you what this looks like and let you listen to it as well. It crested at almost 21 feet overnight, and that's not the record. The record was in 1927, uh, but it is absolutely raging, and we keep seeing these pulses of water coming up onto the street. This is the Taylor Street Bridge. I'm going to stop talking for a second and just let you listen to this. That is the power of this river. We have also heard... Uh, explosions in the last hour or so. It, it, they may be electrical transformers, hard to say what they were, but there was a series of explosions here in downtown uh, Montpelier uh, earlier today. Uh, one big concern right now is that Wrightsville Dam that is north of here. It's about six feet left of space before it hits the spillway. If it goes over that spillway, it's going to drop more water into the north branch of this river and bring more water here into the capital. You know, they are starting to dry out today, but it is going to be a long, long process of getting their lives back together in Vermont. This state has been slammed. Back to you guys. Incredible pictures. Miguel Marquez, keep us posted. Thank you. Well, Russia launched a missile attack on Kyiv hours before the start of that NATO summit we've been discussing. We're going to be live on the ground in Kyiv with the latest. Plus, attorneys for former President Trump are asking the judge, in this case, to postpone the start of the classified documents probe until after the 2024 election. Their arguments just ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
We're going to take you live now to that NATO summit in Lithuania. Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, is speaking. President Biden expected to speak shortly. Listen in. It's good to be here. Thank you. Continue to deliver. I, uh, as I've made no mistake, press is not at all surprised. I've been uh, touting the fact that I think it's really important at this critical moment in Ukraine, in the whole uh, NATO issue, that you continue to lead NATO. You're trusted. No one knows the situation that we're facing better than you do. And this historic moment, the, the adding of Finland and Sweden to, uh, to NATO is consequential. And uh, your leadership really matters. And, uh, the, and we agree on the language that, uh, that uh, we proposed, that you proposed, uh, relative to the future of uh, Ukraine being able to join NATO. Uh, and uh, we're looking for a continued united NATO. They've heard me say, my American president heard me say many times, I still think that, uh, that President Putin thinks the way he succeeds is to break NATO. Not going to do that, especially with you, Elizabeth. So thank you for the willing to do it. Thank you. So thank, you thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. President, what is your role in getting Turkey to agree, Mr. President? Mr. President, why weren't you at the signing? You were just watching President Biden and NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg in Vilnius, Lithuania, at the start of a very consequential NATO summit, and a NATO summit that comes as the 31st member of NATO. Finland has already uh, joined the coalition, and the 32nd, Sweden, appears to now have a pathway forward after a uh, lengthy process where Turkey and, to some degree, Hungary as well were standing in the way. Those pathways have now been cleared. The president making clear what a significant moment this is, adding those two countries to the alliance at a very consequential moment in the ongoing war in Ukraine. That's absolutely right. So let's bring in someone on the ground there, uh, British Defense Secretary Ben Wallace. Thanks for joining us. I want to get your reaction, if you would, first to what we just heard from uh, Stoltenberg and President Biden. Yeah, look, it's really good news. Sweden have, uh, you know, literally got to the final 99% of acceding to NATO. It just has to go through the Turkish parliament. You know, a lot of us have been working quite hard behind the scenes for the Turkish and others to make sure this happens. Look, it, it, it's really important because, first of all, Russia will pick on countries that don't manage to get in or are transitioning from uh, non-membership to membership, and that, that can leave them exposed. And Russia, we often see, try and use division. But it's also really important for the integrity of the alliance that, you know, we have an open door policy. We say if you uh, meet certain conditions, you can join. And, you know, Sweden is a, is a strong member of Europe, uh, a member of, you know, in a sense, the UK's backyard is Scandinavia. It's very, very important uh, that they got that protection alongside long-standing members such as Norway and Denmark. Can you tell us any more about how this came to be? I think it was surprising to many uh, watching all of this unfold, how quickly there was an about face from Turkey. Can you tell us more about what concessions were made uh, to Turkey for this deal to happen? Well, I think Sweden made the main concession, which was at the outset of this. Uh, Turkey faces quite a lot of terrorist threat, whether that's from ISIS, whether that's from Al-Qaeda or whether that's from the PKK, a Kurdish terrorist group that is prescribed across Europe. Uh, and Turkey felt that Sweden's counterterrorism suite of legislation was not 
sufficient enough to deal with that threat. And you know, the new Swedish government changed the legislation. And you know, there was a point, I used to be the government security minister, and there was certainly, uh, you know, Sweden had a, a set of legislation that wouldn't really reflect the legislation we have or the United States have. So I think they made those changes. And when they started to show the Turks, they'd made actual solid recommendations. They've taken bills through Parliament. I think that helped move the Turkish a long way. And then the international community talked to the Turkish at length and said, look, it's really in everyone's favour. The only winner of this schism would be Putin. But, of course, also Turkey wants to be part of the EU. Um, they want F-16 fighter jets. Uh, so it seems like this also paved the way for those to happen as well. Would you agree? No, I, I don't know if there was anything extra. I, you know, uh, Turkey is a long way from EU membership. We're no longer a member of the EU, but um, certainly I think you know, Turkey would have had us some arse. But fundamentally, I'm delighted that we turn up today in Vilnius and we're literally in the place where Sweden will be joining us. All right. You talk about the conditions that have to be met to join NATO. You say that uh, Sweden has met those conditions. You said Thursday that NATO should look at clearing hurdles in order for Ukraine to join the NATO alliance. You heard Secretary General Stoltenberg saying just a minute ago here um, that we carried live on CNN that NATO plans to remove the requirement for a membership action plan. Then you have the White House saying that in addition to waiting until after the war, Ukraine still has further reform steps to take before joining. Do you disagree with the United States' stance here? Well, look, I, I totally agree with the United States that we can't have a new member uh, in the middle of a conflict. I mean, that would just import war into the alliance. Uh, and I think it's certainly the case that we, we should all, as we are, work together to make sure that uh, Russia fails in its attack and its illegal invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and we end up in a position where uh, we can then discuss the future. But, you know, after this war... I think, first of all, given we have an open door policy, it's important to state that we believe Ukraine does belong in NATO. Mm -hmm. There are some steps that need to be met uh, to get there, and those steps would involve the likes of making sure its military is up to standard. But we can see right now that its military is up to standard. Its military is taking on a vast superior sized Russian force and has dealt it a heavy defeat. So I think overall, you know, Ukraine is not far off membership. Uh, but obviously, we're in an alliance of, by then, 32, and everyone has to move at the same pace. But, you know, from Britain's point of view, Ukraine belongs in NATO, but we agree with the White House we have to wait until this conflict is over. Uh, but a lot of the reforms that were set out back in 2014 uh, by uh, NATO accession, the rules, actually even going earlier than that, uh, towards 2008, uh, Ukraine has followed. We've been involved so let me in ask defense you this, reform, then. the United States, Canada. Uh, we've been there helping them modernise... Uh, and, you know, they've started to deal quite strongly with their corruption uh, that had been a hallmark of Ukraine. That's very much in, 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 the, in a much better position. So we think the path is set out. Ukraine have followed it. Uh, it is starting to be a, a healthier democracy and, and demonstrate that it can, can, can stand for people. And you know, all those people fighting right now for their freedoms, they aren't going to give that freedom up lightly after this war uh, by just turning it into uh, a former Russia, sort of Russian state with lots of corruption. They're determined to look to Europe and behave like Europeans. Uh, and I think that is, should be recognised. So I don't know, whenever this conflict finishes, we should be prepared as quickly as possible to bring So let Ukraine me just ask NATO. you, because you clearly agree with the US in terms of waiting until after the war is over, but the US has also said that Ukraine huh? needs to take more reform steps. Could you not hear me? Can you hear me? Are we having some audio issues? No signs. 
Oh, that's Nothing. too bad because we do have some more important questions to ask, including about cluster munitions. Hopefully we can get the defense minister of the UK, Ben Wallace, back with us on the show. I'm not sure what happened there, but those technical issues happen, especially at the fact that he's all the way in Lithuania. We're here in Washington, D.C., right? A very significant uh, player in Lithuania of course. as well. Was considered a potential prospect to be the next NATO Secretary General. Yeah. Obviously, Jens Stoltenberg's uh, term has been extended by another year, but has been a uh, critical uh, player within the alliance over the course of several years now, obviously, in his role uh, as UK Defense Minister. And also a very interesting perspective. There are some disagreements underneath the surface uh, but aligning to some degree with the U.S. It, side. It was it. interesting. And what I was going to ask him is he, he made clear that um, the U.K. agrees with the U.S. when it comes to waiting until after the war to include Ukraine. Um, but he also made clear, it sounds like what he was saying, that um, he, he's not quite on the same page when it comes to all the different steps right. that Ukraine needs to take, the reform steps to become more democratic to join, as we heard from Jake Sullivan and President Biden. Right, which is a critical component, yeah. something Ukraine has both acknowledged and also been working on for a significant amount of time. So what that actually means going forward, yep. that's a good interview. Good Thank point. you. Well, um, well, we have more. A gym, a spa, a Turkish steam bath. It's not Jake Tapper's house. It's new, <laughs> rare footage that's showing the luxuries inside Vladimir Putin's secret bulletproof train. See what else CNN uncovered. That's coming up next. And Jake Tapper's coming up later in the show, too. We'll have to ask him if that's really not his house. house. Yeah. Stay with us. Welcome back. New this morning, attorneys for former President Trump are asking the judge overseeing the classified documents case to delay the start of the trial in Florida until after the 2024 election. Now, they say the Justice Department request for a December start will come in the heat of Trump's presidential campaign. Sarah Murray joins us on set with the latest. Um, He was always a candidate when the charges were brought. You could argue the presidential campaign is happening now. What are we supposed to take from this filing? Look, there's going to be a big fight over scheduling going forward. And in this filing, they make clear, Trump and Walt Nauta's team, that they don't think that a trial can proceed fairly as long as Donald Trump is running for president of the United States. It would impact the outcome of the presidential election as well as the ability for both Donald Trump and Walt Nauta to prepare for trial. So here's one of the lines in this filing that sort of shows how they're casting this as, you know, Donald Trump versus Joe Biden, even though there's a special counsel in this case. They say proceeding to trial during the pendency of a presidential election cycle where an opposing candidates are effectively, if not literally directly adverse to one another in this action, will create extraordinary challenges in the jury selection process and limit the defendant's ability to secure a fair and impartial adjudication. So essentially, it's going to be really hard to get a fair trial in the middle of a presidential election. They also say, look, there's a lot of evidence we have to go through, including so far at least nine months of security footage. It's not a surprise that they're asking yeah. for this trial. I mean, it, it, you know, and also there's the question, hypothetically, if he did become president, does he, will he really get a fair trial then? And there's the DOJ memo saying that it's unconstitutional to criminally prosecute a sitting president. So there's all kinds of. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're if you are a very cynical person, which of course I'm not. Of course not. You, you yeah. might, <laughs> of course not. You might suggest oh, that that Donald Trump wants to kick this down the road because if he is the president of the United States, exactly. you're in a much better position to pardon Walt Nada and potentially be in an interesting constitutional question about whether you could just pardon yourself. Hmm. Interesting points to raise there, Sarah. All right, and let's if she's talk- cynical. If she's cynical, she's yeah, that's wrong. just the cynical point of view, not yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's make that clear. All right. This was really interesting. The the U.S. attorney in Delaware, David Weiss, 
is openly refuting now some of the IRS whistleblower's claims in the Hunter Biden probe. Tell us what he's saying. He wrote a, a very concise letter to Capitol Hill and made a lot of news in it. I mean, we heard from these IRS whistleblowers who complained that there was political interference in the Hunter Biden criminal probe. And essentially in two paragraphs, David Weiss said, one, you said I wanted to be a special counsel. I never asked to be a special counsel. So that knocks down one of the big allegations. And two, he says, I was never blocked from bringing charges anywhere in this investigation. That was another thing the whistleblowers Claimed, You know, he, again, decided to move forward with tax charges, and Hunter Biden decided to plead guilty to two of those tax crimes, and it was in Delaware. But Weiss is making very clear that he had the authority to proceed with his investigation. And again, this is a big deal. Republicans have held up these claims on Capitol Hill as an indication that the Biden administration was somehow influencing this probe, and David Weiss is trying to make very clear uh, that he was able to move forward. And again, he's a Trump appointee. Do we think he'll testify at some point? I think he will testify at some point. You know, I think this has to be taken care of in court. Hunter has to officially uh, file his plea in court in the next couple of weeks. But I think both Weiss and Merrick Garland have made clear uh, that he's willing to testify when it's appropriate. All right. Sarah Murray, thank you. Thanks. Well, the first ever classified briefing on AI in the Senate is today. What can we expect to hear about it? And right now we are waiting for NATO leaders to gather for a group photo as the future of Ukraine's membership will be discussed. We're gonna take you there live. Stay close. There are fast moving developments this morning on the front lines of Ukraine, just about 700 miles southeast of the NATO summit in Lithuania. Ukraine says it's managed to repel Russia's early morning airstrikes in Kyiv. And at the same time, Ukraine is accusing Russia of targeting grain facilities and the southern port city of Odessa using Iranian drones. CNN's Alex Markhard live in Kyiv for us. So, Alex, what, if anything, could be read into the timing? Uh, do you think this is Russia's latest attempt to make a statement as NATO leaders gather in Lithuania and as Turkey paves a way for Sweden to join NATO? Well, Pam, it is certainly possible, but this is very much a continuation of what we've seen from Russia. These barrages of airstrikes, both missiles and drones being targeted all across Ukraine. Uh, around 30 of these drones being targeted at both the Kyiv region, the capital where I am, as well as the southern port city of Odessa overnight. Almost all of them, those Iranian-made kamikaze Shahed drones, they were almost all taken down, we're told, by Ukrainian air defenses. There was some damage to buildings here in the Kyiv region, at least two of those drones getting through uh, in the port city of Odessa and hitting administrative buildings, we're told. Thankfully, it appears that there have been no casualties. But as you note, Pam, this is coming at, uh, at a time of this critical NATO summit. Ukraine hoping for some very concrete results uh, from this summit. They're hoping to be told how and when they can expect to join the NATO alliance. But this morning, Pam, uh, it is not clear whether Ukraine is going to be getting those answers. We heard earlier today from the U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan saying to not expect a timetable for Ukraine to join the NATO alliance. He talked about reforms that Ukraine needs to undertake. And then just moments ago, Pam, a rather angry tweet from President Zelensky uh, saying that they're starting to hear about certain wording being discussed in Vilnius without Ukraine. I want to read part of this frustrated tweet. He writes, it's unprecedented and absurd when time frame is not set, neither for the invitation nor for Ukraine's membership, while at the same time, vague wording about conditions is added even for inviting Ukraine. It seems there is no readiness neither to invite Ukraine 
to NATO, nor to make it a member of the alliance. He goes on to say, Pam, that this means motivation for Russia to continue its terror. Now, we have not yet been told whether President Zelensky will actually be attending the summit. An official uh, tells our uh, our colleague Arlette Sines that he is expected to meet uh, with President Biden while there. But But President Zelensky has been clear, Pam, that he's not going to be going to Vilnius for fun, as he says. It is clear that they really do want concrete outcomes from this NATO summit. Pam? All right, Alex Marquardt, thank you. Well, also this morning, a new trove of paperwork and photographs providing a rare glimpse inside Russian President Vladimir Putin's ghost train. That 22-car locomotive includes a fully equipped gym, a skincare and massage parlor, state-of-the-art communication systems, and the whole thing is bulletproof. So the president can travel in style as analysts say he grows increasingly paranoid about his safety. CNN's Matthew Chance live in London with more. Matthew, there's always been a lot of questions about what this train actually looks like, what it is. What's the advantage for Putin to travel by train? Yeah, well, I think he just feels it safer. I mean, look, Phil, remarkably little is known about Putin's private life or about how he travels around his vast country. But this new trove of documents, which is obtained by the Dossier Centre, which is a Russian investigative group, and shared with CNN, does reveal fascinating insights about that train and about how the Russian president is cosseted behind closed doors. A rare glimpse inside Putin's secret train. With leaked documents shown to CNN. (laughs) Revealing how the Kremlin leader travels amid increasingly tight security and luxury. He's surrounded by enemies. And he, psychologically, he wants to feel protected. From outside, train number one, as it's dubbed in Russia, seems ordinary. Its heavenly armoured carriages purposely disguised with regular Russian railways, paintwork and grime. State media was once allowed inside, recording President Putin meeting transport officials in a sumptuous boardroom. The train's other 20 or so carriages, some updated as recently as last year, have remained a closely guarded secret until now. Zircon Service is a Russian company that builds what it calls elite wagons for its clients, specialising in luxury designs for private and state corporations, of course, the Kremlin. Among a trove of documents, including blueprints, letters and images, obtained exclusively by the Russian investigative dossier centre and shared with CNN, is one from Zircon Service, dated August 2018, notifying the Kremlin of a test run for what it calls the sports health wagon that's been ordered. Accompanying photos show what the dossier centre says is Putin's private gym on board the train. As recently as last year, the Kremlin was looking to upgrade the gym with American equipment to replace the Italian machines originally installed. A former member of Putin's personal protection service who says he fitted the train's secure communications equipment before defecting from Russia told the dossier centre the Kremlin leader started travelling by train more regularly in the build-up to the invasion of Ukraine last year. (laughs) 
отслеживаются на каком-нибудь таком вот информационном ресурсе. Это просто момент такой для скрытности, то есть для перемещения, чтобы никто не знал, кто куда. But discretion for the Russian president doesn't mean discomfort. Leaked plans for the train also show a luxurious spa on board, including a Turkish steam bath. And according to the dossier center, a fully equipped cosmetology suite with a massage table and high-end beauty equipment, including a radio frequency machine used to enhance the tautness of human skin. Now, the Kremlin disputes the dossier center's findings, telling CNN that President Putin neither owns nor uses a railway car like the one described. But in the aftermath of a recent armed rebellion here in Russia, in which Putin's authority was threatened, the focus on his isolated existence is higher than ever. And the idea of Putin being pampered as he travels incognito by armored train underlines how strangely cloistered the Kremlin leader has become, even paranoid and besieged, according to his former speechwriter. Why is it, do you think, that Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin have spent such large sums of money planning and constructing this armored presidential train? He's losing the war, he's losing politics, losing popularity, he's getting more and more enemies, committing more and more crimes. He cannot build political walls, so he, he wants to build like, the walls of concrete and armor, uh, physical defense. There are signs that's an image the Kremlin knows it should shed. In recent weeks have seen Putin more publicly engaged than he has been for years. But in his increasingly hostile world, the security and luxury of train number one may be sanctuary indeed. Well, Phil, Putin, of course, has good reason to feel threatened from outside. We saw the dramatic events, the armed uprising of the past uh, couple of weeks. But the problem is, the more closeted he is from the general public, the more that threat is likely to grow. Phil, back to you. Not the chance. Fascinating reporting. Thanks so much. Well, new images this morning of the latest round of anti-government protests in Israel. Demonstrators are taking to the streets after Israeli lawmakers voted to strip the country's Supreme Court of the power to declare government actions unreasonable. We're going to have much more on this developing story just ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Happening right now, you're looking live at pictures out of Vilnius, Lithuania, where NATO members are officially greeting and getting set to take, known, uh, to take what's known as the family photo. Always an interesting and somewhat bizarre uh, set of interactions that happens at all of these major summits. President Biden and alliance leaders have entered the high-stakes summit with a sense of unity after a major win when Turkey agreed to Sweden's bid to join the alliance. We're going to be following this throughout the course of this morning. Well, it's not even a week old, but Meta's new social media site, Threads, has surpassed more than 100 million users already. That's according to Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg. And meanwhile, there are reports of measurable declines in Twitter usage in just the past few days. Joining us now is CNN senior media analyst and senior media reporter at Axios, Sarah Fisher. It's so interesting because there have been several different platforms who, who tried to to do what Threads is accomplishing now, but they haven't been able to. 
Why do you think Threads has been able to achieve this substantial growth in such a short amount of time? Because it's linked to Instagram, which has well over a billion users around the world. And what they did was they waited until they could figure out how can we launch this product quickly. And when they saw that Elon Musk was limiting the number of tweets that people could get, they bumped up the launch, had over a billion people get this message out. If you want to sign up for Threads, you use your same Instagram account. And basically overnight, this became a success. A huge success, by the way, because if you think about it, Meta has launched so many copycat apps in the past few years. Mm-hmm. Many of them have been shuttered. But this one so far, I think will stick. They're getting good press. Uh, I'm sure they feel fi- like finally, right, after. For going after a competitor. When yeah. does Mark Zuckerberg get good press for going after a competitor? <laughs> well, I think it's when the competitor is Elon Musk. Yeah, exactly. To some degree. exactly um, right. I do want to shift over to artificial intelligence, mostly because if I don't, Pamela, who talks about it, <laughs> Pretty much every second of every commercial break. Uh, <laughs> Only we'll because I'm taking a class on it. Taking right, a class on it. Very fascinated by it. The, the U.S. Senate is going to have a classified briefing today. It's first classified briefing on artificial intelligence with senior intelligence and defense department officials. What's your sense right now of lawmakers' understanding and what they could possibly do uh, to get in front of this very fast-moving technology? I actually think they're doing the right thing by taking these briefings, by holding their own educational briefings, by bringing folks like Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, into Capitol Hill. If you think about it, we didn't have lawmakers taking social media regulations seriously until it was far too late, 10 years into the process. We had this type of technology be rolled out to the masses about six, seven months ago, and already we're having White House classified briefings, we're having briefings on Capitol Hill. So they're doing the right thing there. What they need to do, Phil, though, is get consensus. Right now, I think there is a bipartisan understanding that we need to do something around legislating with AI. No one knows exactly what we're going to do. What this briefing will help understand is how our adversaries are handling AI. Not only are they going to share with lawmakers today about what we're doing as a country in terms of national security, science and technology, advancing the country with AI, but also how are other countries leveraging it and regulating it. Perhaps that could inspire lawmakers here to come up with some ideas. Love that optimism. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they they better get to it fast, right? Because like you say, other countries are are doing just that. And it's really touching every sector, including as I I was learning in my class last night about automated weapons and AI and how each country has a different view on whether automated weapons should be fully controlled by AI, how much human control there should be. There's so many different questions within just the national security realm. There's also a lot of questions about copyright law and artificial intelligence, and there's really not a lot of clarity about how this is going to shake out. You have this new lawsuit filed by Sarah Silverman um, suing Meta and OpenAI for copyright infringement. Uh, this is what they said. Oh, I'm sorry. I, my, I misunderstood my producer in my ear. Um, I thought that there was sound. but So basically... So Sarah Silverman suing over the, the training data that was used for, for these platforms. And um, it's really an interesting case. And this is probably going to be the beginning of many, right? So many cases. So until we can, until we can figure out how we're going to legislate AI, most of this is going to be left to the courts to figure out how we interpret our current laws to be able to fit this new technology. What Sarah Silverman is suing for is she's saying these companies like OpenAI and Meta use my copyrighted work to train their algorithms, and I want to get paid for that. I want money for that. And I also, I think these types of celebrities are trying to set a precedent so that other artists' work Mm -hmm. aren't going to be abused. But it's interesting to know, again, Pamela, these are pretty serious lawsuits that are going to be filed in courts all throughout the country as we try to figure out what's going to happen. And, And these companies say, look, it's fair use. We should be able to use this. 
The Copyright Office said that works from artificial intelligence is not copyrighted, so it raises all kinds of questions, too, of who do you hold accountable in these cases? Totally. Yeah. All um, right. Full employment for lawyers, full employment for <laughs> uh, lawmakers, full employment for Sarah Fisher, who's going to explain everything to us throughout. Thanks so much, Sarah. All right. Thank you so much, Sarah. We want to turn to the devastation out in Vermont. Look at these pictures. Catastrophic flooding hitting Vermont there, washing out roads and cutting off communities. President Biden declaring a state of emergency. We are live on the ground as millions are under flood alerts. Right now, President Biden is in Lithuania to kick off a high-stakes NATO summit. Turkey has now agreed to back Sweden's NATO bid. Stockholm, in turn, appears to be supporting Turkish membership in the European Union. It makes us all stronger and safer. White House officials say Joe Biden will meet with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky on Wednesday. Deadly flooding drenching the Northeast. I knew I was going to lose a lot of stuff. What more could I do? It's going on for days, and uh, that's my concern. This is the new normal. Be prepared for the worst because the worst continues to happen. The DOJ accusing Trump's longtime aide of asking for a, quote, unnecessary delay in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case. Former President Donald Trump's lawyers, they are asking that the trial be postponed until after the election. You get within 60 days of the election, DOJ policy is you don't go forward with criminal charges that are going to affect the election, which may be why Jack Smith has been saying it is the opposite of the public interest to have delays. Today, the Senate will receive its first ever classified briefing on artificial intelligence. Actress and comedian Sarah Silverman is suing both OpenAI and Meta, alleging copyright infringement. Essentially what they're saying is you're taking my copywritten work and you're using it to train chatbots. I think in the future we should expect to see a lot more lawsuits like that. Good morning, everyone. A lot of news this morning, but I do want to know, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. winning the Home Run Derby last night, like his father in 2007. I'm sure this was all you were thinking this about last it. night. This you were at an it. AI class. I was watching <laughs> the Home Run Derby. I, you probably feel like you got the better of that one. I don't I know. You've got some disagree. input to add on that, so much more than I do. <laughs> uh, but before we get to baseball and the Home Run Derby and probably a little bit more AI, we have a lot of news, including what we've been following all morning. That crucial NATO summit in Lithuania is underway. President Biden huddling with allied leaders as the war in Ukraine rages on. Now, this high-stakes summit comes after the huge announcement that Turkey will allow Sweden to join the alliance. It is a major strategic blow to Vladimir Putin. President Biden just spoke about it alongside NATO's Secretary General. This is a stark moment, the, the adding of Finland and Sweden to, uh, to NATO is consequential, and uh, your leadership really matters. I still think that, uh, that President Putin thinks the way he succeeds is to break NATO. Not going to do that. Melissa Bell is live for us in Vilnius. So, Melissa, the White House says allies will discuss Ukraine possibly joining the alliance in the future. This, as President Zelensky uh, just sending out a fiery tweet. It was uh, fairly blistering, Pamela, actually, when you look at its wording, warning that uncertainty 
over Ukraine's membership is actually what's fueling the motivation of Moscow to pursue its war. And just have a look at some of that wording. He described it as unprecedented and absurd that no timetable had been fixed either uh, for the invitation to be given to Ukraine, nor indeed for Ukrainian membership itself, going on to complain about the conditions being attached. And yet, Pamela, I think it's important to note, as we've just heard from President Biden speaking alongside Jen Stoltenberg there a few moments ago, even as uh, they gather for that crucial group photograph of 31 plus Sweden uh, now, nearly 32, uh, that the wording that President Zelensky described in that tweet is precisely what it's been so difficult for the 31 to agree on because NATO has been fundamentally divided over how quickly and how easily and how firmly they should tell Ukraine that it can join once hostilities have ended. So an interesting uh, uh, launch there from President Zelensky, even as he prepared to travel. He says he's prepared to talk about this openly when he arrives tomorrow. It was perhaps not the tone that NATO allies had been looking for. And yet this is something that's being closely watched from Moscow. Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman a few moments ago in his daily call with Germany, journalists saying that this summit being held here in Vilnius beyond its location, its geography, Pamela, and it's important, we're 20 miles here from the Belarusian border. The point was not so much the geography, he said, uh, but the anti-Russian stance. And of course, that, the fact that Moscow is watching matters hugely, the fact that unity has been achieved thus far with the 31 plus two is important as well. And tomorrow, of course, that group photograph that should include President Zelensky. Yeah, Melissa Bell, policy, substance for sure, optics. You just saw the president, President Biden, at his meet and greet. The family photo of NATO members is coming uh, shortly after. We'll get back to Melissa Bell uh, in a little bit. Thank you so much. All right. Joining us now is former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, John Bolton. He also served as Donald Trump's national security advisor. Thank you for coming on. Appreciate it. So I first just want to get your reaction to that tweet from Zelensky. I mean, that was, as I said earlier, fiery. Well, Zelensky's completely right. The administration is about to make a mess of, of the whole Ukrainian relationship with NATO, and Zelensky has a historical memory. George W. Bush proposed bringing Ukraine and NATO uh, into NATO along with Georgia in April of 2008, rejected by Germany and France, but with a NATO promise that ultimately Ukraine would be part of NATO. The Russians followed that up by invading Georgia four months later and Ukraine in 2014, and NATO did nothing. The United States did nothing. Now they're saying again, well, Ukraine will become a member of NATO at some point. It's simply inviting uh, the same uh, lesson for the Russians to learn that if a country isn't in NATO, it's vulnerable. Your, Ukraine is fully qualified to be in NATO. It was in 2008 when Bush first proposed it. It was just as qualified as the Central and Eastern European countries that came in in the 1990s and early 2000. It's only one reason. Why, why NATO uh, has a problem with Ukraine coming in, and that is NATO has a long-standing policy. It never invites into membership a country that's at war, because to do that would trigger Article 5 of the NATO Treaty and potentially put all of NATO at war. Nobody's given an answer to that objection, but that's what they should be trying to figure out ho how to overcome. How do you overcome that? Yeah. Uh, this is the thing I don't understand is, what is the alternative to uh, they're changing it from a two-step process. They no longer need a membership action plan to a one-step process. Yeah, this this is just bu bureaucratically Understood. meaningless. But, but in terms of what would be meaningful, 
given the fact there are active hostilities and a member would trigger Article 5 in the midst of active hostilities, what is the alternative here? Well, the problem is Biden's putting other objections in the way. He says they're not ready for NATO membership. That, that's a mistake. That's a signal to Russia. This could be a long time off. I think there are security guarantees they could provide. Frankly, I would have told Zelensky long ago, stop pushing this because you're not going to get this objective. But it's part of the mishandling of, uh, of Ukraine policy that's been going on in the administration for some time. But to be clear, you think that Ukraine should be accepted into NATO while it is engaged in war with no, Russia? No, that's my if- point. This is, there's one objection, and that's the ongoing war. It's not that it's not democratic enough. It's not that there's corruption. It's not that they need a, a membership action plan. It's not anything so- else. There's one reason. So if you get rid of the NIFNAF that the White House has been focused on and concentrate on that issue, then maybe you could find an answer or at least something that would be satisfactory to Ukraine. Instead, we're having a debate about irrelevancies in the middle of this war. So you think it is we should wait until after the war? I think that the White that, House has that, said that is the main priority. Yeah, they, they, they should have stopped right there. Okay. Uh, we just are seeing the, the so-called family photo, not our, not our term, to be yeah. clear, um, right here as the world leaders gather at the NATO summit there in Lithuania, including President Biden. A lot of important um, meetings happening today in Lithuania and a lot of developments as well. I mean, the biggest one being, of course, Turkey opening the door for Sweden to join NATO. Russia, unsurprisingly, not too happy about this, saying that... Um, Turkey is becoming has gone from a neutral country to an unfriendly country. And it's so fascinating when you look at Turkey's role in all of this and the the relationship it has had with Russia and being a power broker. How does this change the dynamic in your view? Well, I think Turkey's still a problem for NATO. Uh, I think it was outrageous that it objected to Sweden and Finland's application. I think it was outrageous that Erdogan put the rest of NATO through a process of extortion. We still don't know the full price that the United States has paid to to get Turkey's acquiescence here. I'm sure it has to do with F-16 sales. Personally, if I were in the Senate, I would still vote against selling F-16s to Turkey. Uh, They have not behaved like a good NATO member. They they started down the wrong road by buying Russian S-400 air defense systems, uh, and it hasn't gotten any better over time. I'm glad Sweden is finally getting in. But we need to address Turkey as a separate problem. It's not that it's gone from being neutral. It was always a NATO member. uh, And it hasn't gone to being more anti-Russian. It's still playing a very negative role inside the alliance. Should the U.S. send Turkey F-16s? I would not. I would not at this point. I don't think that uh, Erdogan is trustworthy. Uh, And I think, uh, frankly, if if he had continued to block Sweden, NATO should have looked at uh, at least suspending Turkey from membership. This entire course of behavior does not befit a trusted ally. I want to get to uh, what we just heard for last night from Senator Tommy Tuberville um, about white nationalists being in the military. Our Caitlin Collins, whose new show The Source just launched last night, interviewed him. Let's take a listen to that exchange. When you're in the major- a minority in the Senate, it's the only power that you have to get people's attention, to get them to do it the right way, to go by the Constitution, the only power we have is to put a hold on something. And so we thought that this would get the, uh, the attention of the Secretary of Defense, and we're trying to teach them that you cannot legislate from the Pentagon. And uh, so it's, it, it's a tough situation, and there's nobody more military than me, Caitlin. Uh, my dad was military. 
uh, career military. I'm all for the military. We need a strong military, but we also need to go by the rules in the Constitution and represent the people and taxpayers. Taxpayers are not supposed to pay for anything that has to do with abortion. Just to be clear, you agree that white nationalists should not be serving in the U.S. military. Is that what you're saying? If, if people think that a white nationalist is a racist, I agree with that. I agree they should A white shouldn't. nationalist is someone who believes that the white race is superior to other races. Well, that, that's some people's opinion. Uh, and I don't think, that's I mean, a lot. Uh, pardon? What's your opinion? My opinion of a white nationalist, if somebody wants to call him white nationalist, to me is an American. It's an American. Now, if that white nationalist is a racist, I'm totally against anything that they want to do because I am 110% against racism. But, but that there's is, a lot that of people white, that believe in different things. is racist, Senator. Well, that, that's your opinion. That's it, your opinion. But it's if it's racism, opinion. if it's racism, I'm totally against it. Your thoughts? Uh, look, I'm, I'm against hyphenated Americans. I think, I think you should be pro-American and patriotic. And I think part of uh, the problem in society today is we've forgotten our national motto of e pluribus unum, out of many, one. That's what we should be aspiring to from many different countries, many different faiths, many different races. They are all Americans. That's what we should focus on. And these kinds of distinctions that people are trying to draw are inevitably negative. Do you think white nationalism is an opinion? I, I think, well, it's obviously some people hold it. That doesn't justify it. But do, but do you believe white nationalists are racist? I think that's, I don't know what other way to describe it. So you do. Right. I'm not debating anybody yeah. here. I don't yeah, think yeah, I'm just, I want to be clear because clearly Tuberville didn't want to come out and say that. It was, a, it was an and interesting. Should, and should they be in the military? Well, I think there are all kinds of people in the military. If they keep their opinions to themselves, they can serve the country. That's historically been the case. Can I ask you on the policy side of things or the substance of, of Tommy Tuberville's blockade right now? The Marine Commandant just stepped down. Uh, there will not be a, a confirmed replacement because of the uh, uh, flag uh, promotions that have been held up by Tuberville because of his uh, issues over Defense Department policy related to abortion. Um, do you believe that blockade is justified, or do you believe it hurts national security? At this no, point? I don't believe it's justified for, for constitutional reasons. I think in the past 30, 40 years, uh, the Senate has way overstepped what the framers intended their role was in confirming uh, presidential nominations uh, in the executive branch or the judiciary, certainly in the executive branch. Uh, I think it's much more limited than the Senate thinks it is, and I think uh, this is an example where it's gone too far. But there are thousands of others, that's for sure. All right, Ambassador John Bolton, thank you for coming on, offering your perspective. We appreciate it. Thank you. Now to Israel, where thousands of protesters have once again taken to the streets, some clashing with police earlier this morning, some pictures there, and getting arrested. This comes as Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government moves forward with its controversial plan to overhaul the judiciary. Now, opponents of the judicial overhaul are calling today, quote, a day of disruption and resistance. CNN's Hadass Gold joins us live from Tel Aviv. Uh, Hadass, do you get the sense that these protests will move the scale in any way on this, what has been an ongoing, uh, very significant issue inside Israel? Now, for 27 weeks in a row, 
but they have a renewed vigor now. And that's because last night, one of the new elements of this judicial overhaul passed its first reading. Now, it's just one piece of this massive judicial overhaul. It has to do with whether the Supreme Court can rule government actions to be unreasonable or not. And it still has to go through several other readings. But for these protesters, this legislation coming back on the table after months of it being essentially frozen as negotiations tried to go tried to take place after it was frozen remember from those uh, massive general strike and protests last March. There was attempts at negotiations. Those seem to have failed. Now the government is pushing forward once again with this legislation. Now, they say it's watered down. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has walked away from some of the more controversial aspects of this overhaul, namely allowing parliament to overturn Supreme Court decisions. But these protesters and the opposition essentially do not believe Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his government when they say that it will be a softer reform. They want this overhaul to be completely off the table and they're planning to increase these protests. Tonight there are even calls for tents to be pitched in downtown Tel Aviv. Phil. All right, Hadass Gold live for us in Tel Aviv. Thank you. Kudos to her for keeping it together with all that noise and, and activity in the background there. A new overnight Trump's legal team asks a judge to delay the trial over his mishandling of classified documents citing the 2024 election. We're going to break down his arguments up next, so stay close. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Donald Trump is hoping to delay his trial in the classified documents case until after the 2024 election. His defense team filed a request late last night asking the judge to postpone a trial date for the time being. It reads in part, quote, there is simply no question any trial of this action during the pendency of a presidential election will impact both the outcome of that election and, importantly, the ability of the defendants to obtain a fair trial. Well, Judge Eileen Cannon had originally set a trial date of August 14th. The Justice Department said that was too soon. Instead, pushed for a December 11th start. Trump's team now arguing that's too soon. Trump, of course, has pleaded not guilty to the 37 felony counts against him over his alleged mishandling of classified documents. I want to bring in our panel now, CNN political analyst, Washington Bureau Chief for the Boston Globe, and a Buckeye, Jackie Kucinich, <laughs> political White House correspondent and co-author of West Wing Playbook, and my regular tormentor at the White House, Eli Stokels, CNN Chief National Affairs correspondent, Cornhusker, Big Ten, Jeff Zeleny. <laughs> And defense attorney and former federal prosecutor, Shan Wu. Uh, Shan, I, I want to start with you. When you look at these filings, how persuasive is the president's request, particularly citing the election, which is going to be ongoing uh, for at least the next 18 months? Uh, well, I don't find it very persuasive, uh, but of course, there's no actual legal precedent uh, for this particular situation. So they're right about that. I think the problem here, though, is that it's very hard to challenge a decision by Judge Cannon to basically, quote, delay, unquote, the trial. Uh, it's not necessarily that much of an unusual delay. I mean, it's a complicated case. I think almost any defense counsel would be seeking to delay the case, and they're likely to succeed in putting it off easily um, to the point of the election. Yeah, and let's talk about, you know, you have the legal side of this, the, Trump's lawyers making the legal case, but also, Jeff Zeleny, you have the political side of this and why it would be in Trump's best interest to have this trial delayed until after the election. I mean, without a doubt, because we saw the, the date of the Iowa caucuses, which opens the, uh, the presidential race on January 15th. So, of course, he does not want this to be coinciding it. But I'm sort of struck by he is campaigning on the indictments. Mm -hmm. He is campaigning on the investigation. I was at a rally that he was holding 
on Friday in Council Bluffs, Iowa, and he talked extensively about the investigations and the indictment. So he is trying to have the benefit of that for his political purposes, but obviously try and pushing this uh, down the road legally. But look, he's always done this with all the legal cases against him. He's done a couple things, rarely paid his legal bills and uh, tried to extend the illegal case as long as possible. So I don't think anyone's surprised by this. Uh, Eli, can I ask, I mean, uh, you as somebody who would probably use the word pendency uh, in Western Playbook, uh, a Columbia Journalism grad, That's it's an elite institution. No, um, I'm just giving him a hard time. He gives me a hard time quite often. Um, well, I think one of my questions is, is why the top-tier GOP candidates just have never used this against him, and obviously they want to keep Trump's base. Uh, but to some degree, Ron DeSantis has just waffled around on this issue, and now he's blaming mostly the media. I want you to take a listen uh, to what he had to say. Do you think you would be able to be a challenge to Trump? Well, as I've... You're down over 30 points to Trump. What's your strategy for catching up? Well, first, I think it's pretty clear that the media does not want me to be the candidate. I think that they've uh, tried to create uh, narratives that somehow the race is over. Uh, the, the first clip was Glenn Youngkin. We're going to get to him in a second. <laughs> I didn't mean to fake you guys out on that. But, but th- this idea, it's tried and true. Republicans have used it. Democrats have used it to some degree. Uh, whenever they're down in the polls, attack the media. Do you think it works? Well, it's worked for DeSantis in Florida to attack the media, to, run, to go over the media's head, and to just disparage the media writ large as biased against me. And, and that really works with conservative voters. They've, they've heard that messaging from Republicans for a long time. Um, does it work in a primary? Probably not. When you're losing, as the axiom goes, or when you're explaining, you're losing, right? So he's having to explain why he's double-digit points behind Donald Trump, closer to Vivek Ramaswamy in polling than he is to Donald Trump ahead of him. And that's not great for Ron DeSantis. Blaming the media, I don't think, really is going to change voters' minds on that. And he and all of these candidates who are far behind President Trump, despite of what Trump is dealing with on the legal front, they all have to decide. They all have to figure out how they're going to start going after him more pointedly because they are just tiptoeing around him. And we saw how that worked out in 2016. Didn't really work very well. Didn't work very well for 2016 uh, Republicans to go after him more pointedly either. You can ask Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush, uh, many of them about that. But this is difficult because they need Trump's voters to come their way. Don't want to alienate them. And yet, you know, typically when someone is that far ahead of you, that's your target. All right, so let's get to Glenn Youngkin. Got to, gave you a little preview, a little sneak peek <laughs> <laughs> um, of why he's relevant in the conversation now, especially because some have speculated with you know DeSantis's campaign struggling. This is opening the door for another candidate to join. And could that be Governor Glenn Youngkin? Does he want to jump into the race? Here's what he told our very own Caitlin Collins last night. Do you think you would be able to be a challenge to Trump? Well, as I've uh, said to folks, because I've been asked this question uh, frequently, uh, one, I'm humbled by it. When someone brings common sense to an office like a governor in Virginia and you get a lot done uh, and we deliver on promises made, uh, people pay attention. And I'm encouraged by that. I've heard you say that you're humbled by this when people ask you about this, but you also you've never ruled it out. Well, I, I think what is most encouraging is the is the frequency that people are asking because of what's going on in Virginia. And what I've constantly said is, and you just said that the Iowa, the Iowa caucus has been pulled forward into January. I'm not in Iowa. I'm not at the I'm not will state Will you be fairs. in January? I, I'm going to be in Virginia. And in January, you will not be in Iowa. Well, this is, this is where you have to be. And I don't think I'll be in Iowa. I think I'm going to be in Virginia. 
So, so Virginia is where he's going to be, <laughs> yes. is what he's saying. But still not a no. He's not ruling it out. That said, the longer you wait to throw your hat in the ring and you don't have an organization, it, it, it makes it a lot harder. Just ask President Michael Bloomberg. Yep. Even if you have the money. Wait, he's not... He oh, was, oh, oh yeah, not, not, not yeah. It's yeah. equivalent of jumping onto a moving car, jumping into a speeding car trying to join a presidential campaign at the very end. I mean, look at Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. That's how difficult it is, and he has an organization. Yes. But look, he's plan B. He wants to wait in case everyone else falters. He'll be there. Uh, color me skeptical. It's never been done. Yep. He can't run for a second term in Virginia, so you'd understand why he might still want to have this flirtation. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's pretty difficult the longer you wake. And, and, and if you look at the field, none of these other guys, there's more than a dozen of them, if they're not catching on, how's he going to do it? If yeah. they can't take the air out of Trump, how's he going to be able to do it? Virginia. All right, Virginia. Yeah, he's he's certainly taking advantage from of the York speculation, State. promoting Virginia and, and what he's done. So, you know, he's taking advantage. Minute, that's yeah. for sure. All right, Shan Wu, Jack Kucinich, Eli Stokels, read West Wing Playbook. It's excellent. And Jeff Zeleny. Always read Jeff Zeleny as well. Thanks, guys. <laughs> All right, the fairy tale. It continues. American Christopher Eubanks has just reached the Wimbledon quarterfinals after beating out the fifth seed. And get this, it's his tournament debut. We'll talk about this thrilling upset with seven-time Grand Slam winner Mats Wielander. Coming up next. Welcome back. A new study is pumping fresh life into exercise as a means of staving off depression. As little as 20 minutes of moderate activity a day, five days a week, can significantly lower the risk of depressive symptoms for people over 50. And this is especially true for people with conditions often linked to depression, such as diabetes, heart disease, and chronic pain. Moderate physical activity is typically defined as an activity that, quote, takes your breath so that it is hard to speak while doing it. That includes brisk walking, bicycling, dancing, playing tennis, or running up and down stairs. Meanwhile, the European Medicines, Medicines Agency's Safety Committee is looking into the risk of suicidal thoughts in patients who use popular medicines for weight loss, like Ozempic. The review comes after three case reports raised by the Icelandic Medicines Agency. Two were cases of suicidal thoughts, one following the use of Ozempic, and another use of another, after another drug called Sixenda. I really love this story. I'm sure it's you do story. too. It is the, the, story. The, the story of the day. A moment, a big moment at Wimbledon on Monday. Oh, how about that? Christopher Eubanks has done it. Unbelievable. Six four six four. The storybook has another chapter to be played out. He is smiling and happy for really good reason. The 27-year-old American tennis player, Christopher Eubanks, extended his Cinderella run. He advanced to the quarterfinals in his first ever appearance at Wimbledon, upsetting the number five ranked player in the world. It is a moment that did not come easily, to say the least. Just a year ago, Eubanks was considering leaving the sport altogether. After six years of playing professionally and never making it past the second round in a Grand Slam tournament. Well, he even took a side job as a tennis commentator while still playing. Now he is ranked a career high 40, 43rd in the world. And tomorrow he will face off against world number three, Daniil Medvedev. Joining us now is Tennis Hall of Famer and Eurosports tennis commentator Mats Wielander. He won seven Grand Slam singles titles in his career. So safe to say... 
He knows he a knows, thing. He knows a thing he or He knows two. some stuff. Yeah, he's got some perspective <laughs> on what's going on here. I mean, this is just incredible <laughs> to see his rise, to see where he has come, given he was going to drop out a year ago. I mean, it can be hard, if not impossible, to predict, of course, who's going to win any match on any given day. But tell us what stands out to you about Eubanks' game, how he plays, why this is his moment, how he was able to sort of turn things around for himself. Yeah, so he's got a very big game. Uh, obviously, he's six foot seven, so he's got a huge serve. Uh, he's got a one-handed, beautiful backhand. Uh, he's talked about uh, basing his game on uh, Roger Federer's uh, game and watching a lot of YouTube videos. So, so he plays sort of an, an old-fashioned, traditional tennis. He hits the ball really hard from both sides. Uh, he's got an amazing attitude, and I actually talked to him a couple of times and interviewed him here at Wimbledon, and he said that he, he gives a lot of credit to the time he spent as a tennis commentator because he started to look at the game differently and he realized that, that players were going in and out sometimes of matches mentally and that has uh, given him confidence and knowledge that he didn't have before. So, I mean, I don't know where this is going to end, but uh, it's an amazing story. It's definitely the Cinderella story of this tournament. And Daniel Medvedev is tough, but Chris Eubanks, he's got a huge game and I think that's the big difference from, from other players that sometimes get through to a quarterfinals. We don't know how good he can play. He's playing great, might have to play better. You know, I think the primary question I had for you is what do you do when a 6'7 guy is standing at the net uh, to try and actually get something by him? But I think more importantly, you know, the, the beauty of this story at this moment, you know, if you were watching American Tennis, you were thinking uh, Taylor Fritz, you were thinking Francis Tiafo. Uh, that was who you were thinking of going into this tournament. Eubanks admitted struggling with the playing surface of grass. I think he had this great comment at his press conference a month ago. That he was texting back and forth with Kim Kleister saying basically, uh, that this is the stupidest surface to play on, I'm paraphrasing to some degree. Um, talk about that, the, the ability to kind of get over that and, and the surface itself. Yeah, very hard to uh, to uh, get practice, obviously, on a grass court. So that's why we see a lot of older players do really well at Wimbledon always. Uh, and uh, he won the tournament in Mallorca. I mean, that's huge. So he's won nine matches in a row on a grass court. Uh, it used to be an advantage to be tall and have a big serve on a grass court, but they've slowed the courts down at Wimbledon tremendously since uh, the 80s and the 90s. Uh, so it's not really an advantage anymore to, have, to, to be that size. But you don't come to the net as much. But he is coming to the net. He is uh, very difficult to pass, very difficult to lob over of course, but it's also not enough in today's game to just sort of hit a sliced backhand and come to the net or serve and volley and go to the net all the time. Guys are too good at returning and, and hitting passing shots, so you really have to construct points uh, before you get to the net, and he's doing that. He's more aggressive than anybody in this, in this draw for sure, so for everybody that's up against him, it's not a style that you see every day, and, and you might play a player like that a couple of times a year so it's a big surprise to a lot of guys um, but I think that the most important is his mindset that, that he's mm -hmm. he's relaxed he puts no pressure on himself let's listen to Eubanks himself uh, after his big recent win here's what he said dream come true uh, yeah I, it's tough to really put into words but to, to be able to come out today um, and and play the way that I did and and just kind of take everything everything in it's surreal it's I can't really can't really describe it surreal uh what does he need to do in your view to win against Medvedev 
Well, he needs to just keep playing the way he's playing, which, I mean, the, the level, that's obvious. He has to most probably raise his level, which is not which is not that easy. But but with the style that he has, that is possible if he has a, a, a one of the best days of his tennis life. Uh, he needs to hit a lot of winners. Uh, he needs to keep rallies short. Daniil Medvedev doesn't give you any unforced errors. He moves extremely well. But Daniil Medvedev has never been in the quarterfinals at Wimbledon either. So he's just finding his feet on a grass court. So he, he has confidence because he's three in the world and he's won the US Open uh, once. But he, on a grass court, this is kind of new to him too to do well. So I think that uh, Eubanks must go in with some confidence. But he has to be very aggressive. He has to basically risk a lot and hope that, that he has another tremendous ball striking day. Uh, he's going to get the crowd on his side if he's in the match from the beginning. And the best part about it is he serves so well that he will always have a chance in one of the first three sets. And once he gets to a tiebreak, with that serve, anything can happen. But, I mean, Daniil Medvedev is... It, Novak Djokovic will be harder, but Daniil Medvedev is most probably the toughest player in the draw for him to play at this particular moment because of his skills, because of his retrieving and defensive skills. All right, Matt Wielander, we shall see. We're going to be watching. I'll be day. watching that match. Can't wait to watch I will it. be watching it. Thank you. All right, well, one Republican senator is holding up military confirmations. His latest explanation as to why and how long it may last. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, for the first time in more than 150 years, the Marine Corps is without a leader. It's the result of Senator Tommy Tuberville's blockade on Pentagon nominees. It's a blockade He's had in place since March of this year. At issue, his opposition to the Defense Department's new abortion policy, which provides additional support to service members and dependents who must travel out of state to receive an abortion. Now, in an interview with CNN's Caitlin Collins last night, the Alabama senator doubled down on that standoff. When you're in the major- a minority in the Senate, it's the only power that you have to get people's attention, to get them to do it the right way, to go by the Constitution, the only power we have is to put a hold on something. And so we thought that this would get the, uh, the attention of the Secretary of Defense, and we're trying to teach them that you cannot legislate from the Pentagon. And uh, so it's, it, it's a tough situation. And there's nobody more military than me, Caitlin. Uh, my dad was military. Uh, career military. I'm all for the military. We need a strong military, but we also need to go by the rules in the Constitution and represent the people and taxpayers. Taxpayers are not supposed to pay for anything that has to do with abortion. Well, joining us now is Republican Senator from South Dakota, Mike Rounds. He's also a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Uh, Senator, I, w- I want to start on that because I think the question has become, as this has dragged on for several months, um, is military readiness, is national security actually being affected by the blockade that's been put in place? Apparently not. And the reason why I say that is because if it was, you would have Department of Defense officials negotiating with Senator Tuberville. But in this particular case, they're not responding to him. They're not visiting with him. We can take each one of those nominations one at a time. A new commandant for the Marine Corps could be voted on today and passed out. But they're one at a time. What Senator Tuberville has done is said, we're not going to do by unanimous consent a whole bunch of them all at one time. But if the Department of Defense says this is a very serious issue and it's one that we need to resolve tomorrow, all they've got to do is make the phone call to the senator and say, this is our problem. What are we going to do to fix it? And they sit down and they begin negotiating. Senator Tuberville has made it very clear he has not had contact with them. 
So this is a two-way street. Well, if we want to fix it, but, but to some degree, the Department of Defense has to play as well. I understand that, but this is the executive branch. This is the Pentagon. Um, I, and I understand that the, the, there are tools that the minority party has in this case. If you are every, in the every majority, senator, every senator if you are in the executive yeah. branch, why should the Pentagon feel the necessity, or isn't that kind of a camel's nose under the tent, to start negotiating your independent agency policy with the senator just to break through? Yeah, in this particular case, it's a very sensitive policy. No it question. Has to do Not with denying abortion. that. So each senator has to decide for themselves where they play that card. But every single senator has the ability to decline to participate in a unanimous consent approach to a whole bunch of nominations at one time. Senator Tuberville has that opportunity. Every other member, Republican and Democrat, has the same opportunity. But remember, this is a two-way street. The Department of Defense can at any point step back and say, okay, you disagree with one of the policies that we have now imposed. Let's work our way through this. I saw the interview last night in part. I understand that Senator Tuberville made it very clear that he's prepared to negotiate, but he has had no contact with the department. I've talked to a couple of the folks within the department as well and said, look, work your way through this. What's sit the down way to with work Senator your way Tuberville. through this, though? First, commu communicate with Senator Tuberville. But he sat down with C.Q. Brown, who's, who's the nominee to be the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff yesterday. They're clearly having discussions on some level. And, and, and that's where it has to start. And look, I... I think this can be resolved. Uh, personally, I'd like to see the nominations move through more quickly than what they are. We can take each one individually. So the critical ones at the very top most certainly could be done one-on-one -on -one today, tomorrow, the next day. But long-term, they have to respect the ability for a single member of the Senate to ask for consideration when he is challenging a policy which the Department of Defense has imposed. All right. This is when you guys are in the majority again and somebody is, is following this one. Same, same, thing, no, and the same thing applies on both sides, Republican and Democrat, uh, on a unanimous consent thing. And, and once again, it's unusual, but it is something that it is a unanimous consent. The Senate works primarily on unanimous no, consent. Yeah. And when you have a problem on something, you have to work your way through it. I understand. Um, I do want to ask you about something else the senator was asked about last night. He's made some, some comments related to, <clears throat> to white nationalists serving in the military. Our colleague, Caitlin Collins, asked him about it. This is what he said. Just to be clear, you agree that white nationalists should not be serving in the U.S. military. Is that what you're saying? If, if people think that a white nationalist is a racist, I agree with that. I agree they A white shouldn't. nationalist is someone who believes that the white race is superior to other races. Well, that, that's some people's opinion. Uh, and I don't think, that's I mean, a lot. Uh, pardon? What's your opinion? My opinion of a white nationalist, if somebody wants to call him white nationalist, to me is an American. It's an American. Now, if that white nationalist is a racist, I'm totally against anything that they want to do because I am 110% against racism. But, but that there's is, a lot that of people white, that believe in different things. is racist, Senator. Well, that, that's your opinion. That's it, your opinion. But it's if it's racism, opinion. if it's racism, I'm totally against it. I'm going to be honest. I don't understand why this is the hill that uh, the senator has chosen. And to be clear, this Caitlin was following up on something he said in a radio interview uh, is there confusion about whether or not a white nationalist is a racist, in your view? Not in my view. Uh, for me personally, I think that when we talk about racist, racism has no place in America today. Go back to the very basics, and that is that all men are created equal. We've got to work towards that. It's working towards a more perfect union, but it also means respecting each other and let's not get race into the middle of it. Let's talk about everybody being equal to begin with. And so anytime we have the opportunity to make sure that as a nation, we move back in and we eliminate the color barriers that are there and that have occurred in the past. 
we should do everything we can to make that happen. It doesn't mean that you don't recognize differences, but you should celebrate your diversity. I do want to ask you, um, <clears throat> the briefing that's happening today, the classified yeah. briefing on artificial intelligence, look, everyone's trying to get their heads around this on some level right now, and I don't think anybody necessarily does have their head around this. Um, but what are your expectations from the classified briefing? Very high-level administration officials coming up, intel officials as well. And how do you see this moving forward from a legislative perspective? First thing that we want to do is talk about if, if there's a fear out there about what could happen with, with AI and, and what it means. Defining AI by itself is going to be a challenge. The second piece on this is, is what does it mean for our country in terms of the defense of our country? And what about our offensive capabilities? AI is on the battlefield today. Uh, not just at the highest levels, but right down at the tactical level today. You find it in Ukraine. You find it, you find it uh, in the, uh, the war between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan back in 2020. It was being utilized at that point. So uh, our challenge today is, is to bring our members, Republican and Democrat alike, up to an understanding of just how deeply embedded AI is right now in our military operations so that as we look at different parts for, for uh, regulating or monitoring or learning about AI, we don't hurt our ability to defend ourselves using AI, and that we understand clearly how advanced our adversaries are in the use of artificial intelligence in their operations today. So it's a matter of bringing everybody up to speed with regard to the Department of Defense uh, through DNI, um, through our most technically advanced uh, uh, capabilities in space, but also, when we talk about theoretically what we're going to use AI for in the future, let's not put ourselves at a disadvantage for our offensive and defensive capabilities to the Department of Defense. That's different than the regulatory aspects that we're trying to do to make sure that there is transparency on the civil side of things when we talk about business operations and when we talk about the invasion of privacy that can occur using AI. So it's, it's, it's a fine line that we're trying to walk and we're trying to do it in a bipartisan basis to keep everybody, you know, so that it doesn't become a partisan fight on either side. Can I ask you, before I leave, you don't have much time left, but who, from an adversary perspective, uh, gives you the most concern in terms China. of their capabilities? N no question about How it. How advanced China. do you think that they are at this they, point? They are very advanced. They are very, very capable. Uh, look, the AI, as we look at it, is, is made up of not just the ability to use supercomputers but the ability to have very large databases and to be able to categorize those databases to actually put labels on everything that's in it so that a machine can recognize them. China is very advanced in this, and they are continuing to develop their databases. They're looking at databases in the West right now. It's one of the reasons why you find TikTok being something that, that they promote. Uh, but it's not just China, but the other countries in the world that are our usual adversaries are also using it. It's an inexpensive way to move forward. Russia does have real strong capabilities. Iran has real strong capabilities. And to a much lesser degree, North Korea has some. All right. Senator Mike Rounds, I suspect you will give us all the information from that classified <laughs> briefing later today. Well, we hopefully, ho hopefully it's, it's, a, it's a good way to bring, to bring a number of members up to speed. No question. Senator, thanks so much for coming up. Thank appreciate you. it. Appreciate it. Well, Northwestern University firing its football coach after accusations of hazing within the school's football program. We're going to discuss that after this quick break. Well, this morning, Northwestern University firing its longtime head football coach, Pat Fitzgerald, over allegations of hazing. 
The university president says an investigation revealed 11 players from the past and present said hazing was ongoing in the program. And that while there's no evidence that Fitzgerald knew about the hazing, the head coach is ultimately responsible for a team's culture. CNN's Omar Jimenez joins us now. Omar, you were a student athlete at Northwestern. Uh, you did not play football, we should know. But what is your reaction to this? Well, for stars, I mean, this is a very serious situation, obviously, and Northwestern University President Michael Schill, as part of that investigation, said that 11 current or former players acknowledged hazing had been ongoing, but not just hazing, specifically hazing that included forced participation, nudity, and sexualized acts in a degrading manner. Some student-athletes, according to the investigation, believed it was all fun and games. Others believed it was incredibly harmful. And while that hazing was well-known by many in the program, according to the investigation, the investigator found no credible evidence that head coach Pat Fitzgerald knew of what was happening. That said, according to the investigation, it also reads that the hazing we investigated was widespread and clearly not a secret within the program, providing Coach Fitzgerald with the opportunity to learn what was happening. Either way, the culture in Northwestern football, while incredible in some ways, was broken in others. That statement went on. As much as Coach Fitzgerald has meant to our institution and our student-athletes, we have an obligation, in fact, a responsibility to live by our values, even when it means making difficult and painful decisions, such as this one, we must move forward forward. Now, I've reached out to Coach Fitz, as he's known, along with his agent. We haven't heard back anything on that front, but Coach Fitzgerald has denied knowing any of this was going on up to this point. And just for context, for anyone who may not know, he has been involved either as a player or a coach with Northwestern for nearly 30 years and is by far the most successful football coach in Northwestern history. But clearly, these allegations and the investigation got to a point where the university felt they had no choice. All right, Omar Jimenez, thank you so much. Of course. And CNN This Morning continues right now. Wet from head to toe without any shoes on. I mean, <laughs> so you lost your shoes getting across here? Yeah, I, 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 I couldn't find a rope, so I took two heavy-duty extension cords, tied them to there, and tied them to the back of the truck, and I was going to bring them out. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Phil Mattingly here with Pamela Brown in Washington, D.C. And you saw millions of Americans across the Northeast are still under flood alerts as a slow moving storm continues to dump huge amounts of rain on New England. And right now, President Biden is meeting with NATO allies in a crucial summit, the war in Ukraine dominating the agenda. And Sweden is now poised to join the NATO alliance in a major blow to Russia. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby will join us live just moments from now. And grand jury selection is set to begin today in Fulton County, Georgia, where former President Trump is facing yet another potential indictment, this time for trying to overturn the 2020 election. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. Happening right now, a crucial NATO summit now underway in Lithuania. President Biden is meeting with allies as the war in Ukraine rages on with no end in sight. In a major show of force and unity, Sweden is now poised to join the alliance after Turkey gave its blessing. It's a huge strategic blow for Vladimir Putin. President Biden sat alongside NATO Secretary General as he welcomed Sweden to the table. 
following the agreement uh, yesterday, we will soon also be welcoming Sweden as a full-fledged member. So welcome to you. One of the biggest and most contentious topics of discussion today will be Ukraine possibly joining NATO in the future. President Biden is expected to meet face-to-face -face with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky tomorrow during the summit. Joining us now is the White House National Security Council spokesman, John Kirby. John, thanks so much for taking the time from the North Lawn. Um, I, I want to start with the, the tweet that we saw this morning from President Zelensky. Um, there is a significant show of unity right now uh, at the NATO summit in Lithuania. Obviously, uh, the pathway being cleared for Sweden. Uh, a session, a big moment for both the alliance and President Biden. There's a lot of work behind the scenes here. But President Zelensky coming out and really kind of breathing some fire on the process of a NATO invitation for Ukraine as he's heading towards Lithuania. What's your response to that? Well, I would tell you, and we've said this many, many times, uh, we believe that NATO is in Ukraine's future. I mean, that's something that the alliance agreed way back in, in 2008. Now, there's some reforms, good governance, rule of law, political reforms that Ukraine still needs to work on. And we understand that it's pretty hard to work on some of those reforms when you're at war. And of course, they are at war right now. So NATO membership in the immediate future isn't likely because that would put NATO at war with Russia. Now, what the allies will do uh, over the next couple of days is talk about a pathway to get Ukraine there eventually and what that pathway needs to look like. And part of that path, Phil, will be making sure that the allies stay united on two things. One, supporting Ukraine in the fight they're in so that they can succeed in this war against Russia. And two, that we look at their long-term self-defense needs. What kind of security commitments are they going to need from the United States and from allies and partners as they work towards that path towards NATO membership? Eventually, they'll get there. Uh, but there's a lot of things that still need to be done before before uh, you know we, are, we reach that point. You know, I, I think the, the question... Uh, that I've had coming into this summit. Uh, we know where the president stands and the president's not alone in the stance that you cannot uh, invite somebody into NATO uh, in the middle of a conflict or else Article 5 would obviously trigger and everybody would be in that conflict. I don't think anybody questions that. But in terms of long-term security guarantees, some type of yeah. umbrella or package that could be put together with actual tangible details, is that something that's expected to come out of this? Very specific guarantees from the alliance uh, to a non-member. Well, let's see where the discussion goes. I, I don't know that coming out of Vilnius, Phil, you're going to see, uh, a, you know, an actual blueprint with, with great specificity of what those security guarantees or commitments will look like. But I think you will see the alliance united in the idea of long-term security commitments to Ukraine and making sure that they have all the self-defense capabilities that they're going to need after this war is over. Now, we don't know when that's going to be, the war being over, that is. Um, and we, we don't know exactly what those needs are going to be for Ukraine. But one thing is sure, they're going to still have a long border with Russia that they're going to need to protect. Uh, and they're going to find in the United States and they're going to find in now 32 members uh, of the NATO alliance uh, a real strong resolve at making sure that they can continue to defend themselves. Do you understand why there may be some frustration from President Zelensky uh, and his top advisors about the ambiguity across the board here, not just with a NATO invitation or the process to join NATO, but also with what a long-term security guarantee kind of system would look like. Uh, yeah. They're in the yeah. middle of a war right now. I think yeah. ambiguity is not necessarily helpful for them. 
Of course, of course we understand that. I mean, and they are fighting for their lives, literally fighting for their lives. Um, and you can't look, look just around the world and, and not see how united so many countries, more than 50 are to helping them succeed in that war. But that's gotta be the focus. I think you're gonna see a lot of attention by the allies uh, on immediate security needs. And as I said, uh, long-term security needs as well. But yes, uh, their, their frustration, their desire for more capabilities, uh, their desire to end this war quickly, all of that we understand. And of course we share many of those concerns. Uh, John, one of the questions I've had is, uh significant and I think to some degree a very surprising move forward yesterday uh, or this morning, I've lost track of time to some degree, in terms of uh, President Erdogan kind of clearing the pathway for Sweden's uh, ability to join NATO. Um, what do you, what's your understanding of what President Erdogan received in order to clear the pathway there? Well, I think, well, first of all, we thank President Erdogan for his leadership. I mean, this was a bold step that he took uh, at a very critical time for the alliance, and we're, we're grateful for that. Uh, there were lots of conversations and lots of engagements by, by the administration over recent days and weeks uh, with not just President Erdogan, of course, but, uh, but with uh, the Prime Minister of Sweden, who was here at the White House. Uh, and there were many discussions here. But I think, ultimately, this is good for the alliance. This is a, a terrific modern military that we're used to working with. We know they use Western equipment and systems. Uh, they're going to really add to, uh, to NATO's eastern flank. We're grateful uh, that, that, uh, that uh, President Erdogan was, was willing to make this bold step and and, and move forward. And I think a lot of it was, frankly, to your question, uh, a lot of it was based on conversations and dialogue between Sweden and Turkey over Turkish concerns and making sure that those concerns were appropriately addressed. And we believe and have believed for quite some time that, that Sweden had already met all their commitments that they put forward on the, on the margins of the, the Madrid summit a year ago. One, one thing before I let you go, uh, on the issue of cluster munitions, uh, you guys have been kind of very clear about your perspective and I think some of the pushback that you've received and, and you've addressed sure. that as well. My biggest question has been, there's been kind of two rationales for it. One is the fight that the Ukrainians are now in, uh, where Russians are very dug in uh, across uh, the front lines. These would be a helpful uh, defense capability to have. The other is purely running out of uh, yeah. defense industrial <laughs> Ish, uh, issues that the U.S. and its allies are having. Which is it? I've heard yeah. both as the explanation, which is it? Well, it is actually both, Phil. But the, but the prime driver right now is the inventory issue. Uh, the, the Ukrainians are literally in a gunfight. It's an artillery fight, and they're trying to get through minefields while being shelled by the Russians. Uh, so it is a it is a very heavily dependent. Uh, it's a heavily it's a fight that's heavily dependent on artillery, um, and they are going through many thousands of rounds per day. Um, and it's difficult for the West to keep up with the artillery shell production that they need, what we call unitary shells, single explosive shells. Um, and so while we are ramping up our production of those shells, and we are, uh, we aren't where we wanna be. So as a bridge, so that they don't run out of shells, so that they can continue to fight in this gunfight, we're gonna provide them uh, with a bridging solution of some cluster munitions. Now, the cluster munitions do add some capability to them. They do allow them a little bit more flexibility in breaking through some of the Russian defenses. But the main reason is really to get us a, a bridge to a larger production rate of unitary, normal artillery shells that they can continue to use in this counteroffensive. All right, White House National Security uh, Council spokesman John Kirby. I trust that wasn't your car alarm, uh, sir, <laughs> but if it was, please rush back to it. Thanks, Gary. I, I sure it. hope not. Thanks. <laughs> All right, well, less than two hours from now, grand jury selection begins in Fulton County, Georgia, in the case for indictments against former President Trump, members of his inner circle, and some Georgia state officials. 
are their roles in allegedly trying to overturn the 2020 election in that state. CNN's Nick Valencia is live outside the Fulton County Courthouse. Air Murray also back with us. Want to start with Nick, though. Tell us, what potential charges will these jurors be looking at, Nick? Yeah, good morning, Pamela. Fonnie Willis, the district attorney here in Fulton County, her investigation has really been wide-ranging. It's been broad in scope, and she's looking at everything from obstruction of justice charges, conspiracy charges, and even racketeering. We've talked a lot about the special purpose grand jury over the course of the last year. Uh, they've met in the evidence phase of this investigation to gather evidence in this Trump probe. And uh, they've already handed over their charging recommendations to Fonnie Willis. Willis will now take those charging recommendations to one of the two grand juries that will be selected today. Uh, those, uh, that grand jury, it'll be up to them on whether or not they decide to bring an indictment against the former president and some of the biggest names in his orbit. They will be selected from a pool of jurors in this predominantly Democratic-leaning county, and the process is expected to last the day with the anticipation that the decision about a potential indictment or indictments will come as early as August. Pamela, Phil? All right, Murray. You've been covering this case for months. <laughs> When? Yes. When? We expect that she's going to make charging decisions again in August. She sent a letter to a number of stakeholders in Georgia, basically telling them to get their security position in order, suggesting that her staff was going to take some temper some remote work days and others may want to consider doing the same thing. You know, I think what's really interesting about what's happening today is you're going to choose grand juries that day-to-day -day are going to be hearing murder charges, they're going to be hearing armed robbery, they're going to be hearing carjacking. And at some point, we expect the district attorney's team to go into that grand jury room and say, okay, today you're going to hear a different kind of case. And at that point, they're going to present their Trump case. Again, we're expecting, assuming she decides to seek indictments, which at this point we still expect. Uh, and then we'll see if the grand jury decides to return indictments. We shall see. I know, I mean, since January, we've been saying it's going to happen. It's, it's going to happen. She'd been giving indications. Here we are, July... The expectation is it would be somewhat soon. Yes. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine that you would go to all of these lengths to set up all of these sort of security procedures and perimeters ahead of time if you are not planning on making some kind of a big announcement. But this is also, you know, a black Democrat district attorney in the South who's faced a lot of threats so far against her and her staff. So I think that they want to be very thoughtful and very cautious whenever they come out with their announcement. All right. Nick Valencia, Sarah Murray, thank you so much. All right, more catastrophic flash flooding in parts of the Northeast this morning and what's being called a historic once-in-a-millennium rainfall. Vermont bracing for even more as it copes with intense rain, impassable roadways, and massive damage. Officials warning that two dams are expected to breach their spillways today. And more than 100 people have been rescued in six hard-hit counties. Others simply watch as their belongings are swept away. This is my home. That is my garage. What have you lost? Don't know yet. We don't know yet. All I know is there was a whole bunch of tools in there, and we watched them go down. Oh, uh, man, we just saw how strong the current was. I mean, look at it. It's pretty strong. So, I mean, if it can knock a few branches off, imagine what it can do to a, you know, to a house. I mean, as long as we're all safe, right. that's the most important thing, and we'll figure out all the other stuff. Well, seeing as Miguel Marquez is live in Montpelier, Vermont, one of the hardest-hit areas. Miguel, you've been doing all of those interviews. You've been doing the reporting here. What can you tell us about what's happening on the ground right now? It is stunning. Okay, this is the Winooski River. It goes right through the capital city here. And around 2 o'clock this morning, so what, six hours ago, it was meant to have crested at about 21 feet. But we are just west of where the north branch of this river hits the Winooski. And this bridge, Taylor Street Bridge, we've been out here for about three hours now, 
The water keeps coming up. I want to I want to let you just listen to what this sounds like. The water on this river has started to overtop this bridge. It's an old trestle bridge built in 1929. The concern here is that if enough debris gathers on this side, and we're seeing tons of trees and branches. I saw it look like pieces of some sort of building earlier hit this thing. It gathers for a while and then goes under and is still able to move. But look at this walking bridge, this trestle bridge just uh, to the west of where we are. It's starting to overtake that bridge as well. Keep in mind, we're a block from the state capitol here. The Wrightsville Reservoir is just north on the north branch of the Winooski River. That, that went up 42 feet in about 12 hours. They had more rain on Monday in Montpelier than any other day in the history, 47,000 days or something that they've been keeping records. So just a massive amount of water. The problem, the biggest problem is, is that they've had so much rain over the last several weeks, the sponge is full. There's nowhere for it to go except over land. And the only question now, there, there are concerns about whether this bridge will stand, but there are a lot of water rescues, over 100 in the state right now, and a lot of concern about people staying safe. Back to you guys. All right, Miguel Marquez in Vermont, great reporting. Thank you. Wow, looking at those images. Well, let's talk to someone on the ground there trying to help all of those residents as the water pours in. On the phone is the assistant city manager of Montpelier, Vermont, Kelly Murphy. Just looking at Miguel's live shot there, Kelly, it shows you how dire the situation is. What can you tell us about conditions there right now? Yes, good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, so they are pretty dire. Uh, travel conditions are extremely poor. Um, we have had to evacuate city operations from downtown. We're currently at our water plant, um, which sits uphill um, just off of uh, one of the main arteries into town. And so we're monitoring things pretty closely, including um, the Wrightsville Dam, which was just mentioned. Um, and hopefully we won't um, experience uh, an overlap there, but it's getting close. So we're, we're yeah. keeping an eye on that. Um, yeah, things are, are not looking great. Um, hopefully they'll start to look better. You say it's getting close at 3.50 this morning. Your city manager posted on Facebook saying the dam only had six feet of storage capacity left. Can you be a little more specific on where things stand now? Sure. We're at about four and a half feet um, and the water's rising at about a half a foot per hour. Um, there's a little bit of lag time um, between sort of, you know, when sort of the rainfall happens and it comes through the dam. And so we're, we're watching. We have somebody out there monitoring. Um, we are evacuating um, along Spring Street um, to get folks out of that watershed. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's a race against time when you put it that way. Uh, how much is left for the dam? How much how quickly water is coming in? Water rescues are underway right now, we know. Tell us about that, and will crews be able to get to people if the dam spills over? So we do have two uh, swift water rescue teams in place and in operation. Um, they've rescued several people at this point um, and are continuing to go out um, to get folks. Um, we've been encouraging folks, you know, if they can get to higher ground. Um, and then, you know, call 911. We're here. We've um, got our dispatch up and running, and we'll answer the call. What should residents who have not evacuated be doing right now? Um, I, I think, uh, so first and foremost, depending on where you are, stay home and stay safe. Um, and then if the water is rising, um, seek higher ground um, and then call emergency services. 
All right, Kelly Murphy, best of luck to you as you help the residents there in Montpelier, Vermont, navigate Thank these you very much. Historical, uh, the historical rainfall and flooding there. Incredible pictures there. We are also getting new images this morning of the latest round of protests in Israel. Demonstrators are taking to the streets after Israeli lawmakers voted to strip the country's Supreme Court of the power to declare government actions unreasonable. This is the first of three votes and is all part of a judicial overhaul uh, to measures to weaken Israel's courts and to give more power to the prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. We're going to keep monitoring this. Also, attorneys for former President Trump are asking the judge to postpone the start of the classified documents case until after the 2024 election. Why now? We're going to discuss the political implications with our very own Jake Tapper, who, by the way, if you haven't heard yet, he's got a new book. book. He's got a a book. book. Yeah. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. Republican Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville once again raising eyebrows over his definition of a white nationalist. Our Caitlin Collins asked him last night to explain comments he made in May in which he said that he considered white nationalists to be Americans. Here's last night's exchange for you to hear Tuberville explain it for himself. A white nationalist is someone who believes that the white race is superior to other races. Well, that's some people's opinion. Uh, And I don't think, I mean, a lot. uh, Pardon? What's your opinion? My opinion of a white nationalist, if somebody wants to call him white nationalist, to me is an American. It's an American. Now, if that white nationalist is a racist, I'm totally against anything that they want to do because I am 110% against racism. A lot that of people white, that believe in different things. is racist, Senator. Well, that, that's your opinion. That's it, your opinion. But it's if it's racism, opinion. if it's racism, I'm totally against it. Joining us now is CNN's chief Washington correspondent, anchor of The Lead and State of the Union, Jake Tapper. His latest book, All the Demons Are Here, is out today. You should read it. Uh, But first, I'm going to ask Jake to explain exactly what Senator Tommy Tuberville was trying to say there. Well, I I can't get into the head of Senator Tuberville. Um, He seems to be trying to parse the difference between people who are abject racists like members of the Ku Klux Klan and people who are merely white nationalists who believe in the supremacy of, of white people. Um, but this is not a difference. This is not a difference, uh, a distinction without a difference. It doesn't make much sense. His comments make more sense uh, when you consider what he said in October at a campaign rally. Uh, the most abjectly racist thing I've heard from a U.S. senator in decades, and I'm quoting here, and he said this on tape, so at some point later today you can roll the tape, but he said, Democrats, quote, want crime because they want to take over what you got. They want reparations because they they think the people that do the crime are owed that. Now, as we all know, reparations is, that's a debate going on about whether the descendants uh, of former slaves should be paid uh, reparations uh, because of the uh, of, of that history. But the idea that he defines the people that do the crime as the defendants of slaves is nakedly racist. That's Senator Tuberville's own words. And I think that there are serious questions about his views uh, when it comes to matters of race and white supremacy. Yeah, that was really illuminating. I remember when he said that. Wow. Uh, let's talk about something else in the news today, Jake Tapper. And that is what Donald Trump's legal team is seeking to postpone the trial in the classified documents case. They're even signaling that they may want to wait until after the 2024 election because they argue it would be unfair to do so while he is running. 
clearly uh, this delay, a potential delay, would uh, be advantageous for the former president. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not and it's not unexpected. It is what I would expect any uh, lawyer to try to do. Obviously, you want to delay the case as long as possible, A, so you can prepare for it, and B, if President Trump is reelected in uh, November 2024, then the case goes away. Uh, so it's not anything that I would uh, not expect his lawyers to be pushing. And in fact, it, it suggests that his lawyers, at least in this case, have some idea of what they're doing and are aggressively representing their client. I do not expect uh, the judge in this case to go along with that. That is, that, that's not a legal argument uh, to say I want to be able to push this off because I'm going to be busy running for president. Uh, but it is, uh, I think right now we need to keep an eye on the judge to see what uh, she does. Yeah, uh, and certainly she's made a lot of news. Trump so appointed. Very, very interesting to watch. Um, all right, Tapper. Yes. We've got we to ask you about your book. Yes. I'm um, pretty sure that's the only reason you woke up early to hang out with us, but I'll take it. Um, so, 80% of the reason. <laughs> uh, Charlie's now a senator. Charlie, uh, for those Charlie who don't Martin, know, this yeah. is the third in a series that, that Jake somehow has found the time to write you don't about. Need one. To, you don't need to read the previous two to understand this one, because this one, they, all the books are standalone, and this one stars uh, Charlie and Margaret's kids. Ike is an AWOL Marine. He's 20. He's working on the pit crew of Evil Knievel. And uh, Lucy is an aspiring journalist in Washington, D.C., and she gets caught up in a brand new tabloid. And I really tried to make this book about this incredibly bizarre time uh, I was only eight years old for, neither of you existed for it, but um, the 1970s in America, while they get a rap for being kind of like a time of, of lameness and malaise and the like, it was actually a really bizarre and weird time for this country. So I really tried to, to dive into that. Evil Knievel, Elvis, UFOs, cults, the rise of tabloid journalism, the summer of Sam, the, the son of Sam, a serial killer here in New York. Uh, and try to tell this amazing story in the context of all this really weird, legitimate stuff that actually was happening. And, you know, when you look back at the 70s, what parallels do you see what was happening then and in our world today? A lot, frankly. Um, first of all, you had tremendous mistrust of government, uh, disillusionment with uh, the people in power. This is obviously following Watergate and the Vietnam War, but you see a lot of parallels to, to the lack of faith and lack of confidence people have today. Uh, the rise of tabloid journalism that started in 1977, and I have Lucy joins up with a Ru Rupert Murdoch-esque character uh, who's starting a tabloid in D.C. It's fictitious, but that was really the time that Rupert Murdoch got a toehold uh, in the New York uh, tabloid scene with the New York Post. And that's, we're living with that today. I mean, Lucy's adventures in the world of tabloids and how people are trying to push her journalism to, uh, into a, a place that she's not comfortable is apparent on a certain other channel where we see that all the time, the pursuit of ratings over facts and truth. Um, that's really where this really began in earnest in the United States. Uh, there's a lot of parallels. I think the disaffected kind of the Vietnam veterans that uh, that Ike is with and, and kind of getting into the, the, the mentality of what they were thinking and what drove them to make decisions. I think you can draw parallels as well. Um, it, it's a fascinating overall book, but like everybody in Washington, I was obviously reading the acknowledgments and sources pages, Jake, uh, at the end of the book. Yeah. Um, just for clarity, I'm not in them. Uh, which is fine. You know, I'm not taking that personally, but there was... You were a, between the lines, Philip. <laughs> yeah, you, you were between the lines. But there was one that kind of caught my eye uh, where you were talking about staying at, at one of your friend's fishing lodges in Idaho. Yes. And uh, that friend is Jimmy Kimmel because Jake is, of course, hanging out with Jimmy Kimmel. Um, Great guy. And it says, Lovely family. I was inspired by his, uh, his and fellow guests P.J. Clapp's love of evil Knievel. Uh, 
PJ Clapp is who? Johnny Knoxville. And, yes. That's the, real, that's the real name of Johnny it's Knoxville. So, right. And so can you please elaborate so on that? Because that's I went, what I I go on this up. fishing trip every year with my family. Uh, uh, Jimmy is, is a, a very uh, lovely host. And he loves Evil Knievel. And look, Evil Knievel, the appeal of this guy, who for those who don't know, he was this larger than life uh, stuntman, motorcyclist, and he was huge in the 70s. He would be on ABC Wide World of Sports. He would do these tremendously uh, sensational jumps. He, in 1974, he tried to jump over Snake River Canyon. It ended in uh, near disaster for him. He was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. He was on the cover of Rolling Stone. And Jimmy and Johnny Knoxville and also Dak Shepard, their love of Evil Knievel convinced me to look into him. And then I made him a big character in the book because he is this quintessentially American character that you can trace back to P.T. Barnum, the salesman, the showman. There are, there are roots of Donald Trump, and I don't mean that pejoratively. There are roots of Donald Trump in him, in his ability to get media attention, in his ability uh, to you know, shoot from the hip and get, get uh, fans for that. So that was very fun, and I do thank uh, Jimmy. I'm not sure if Jimmy Kimmel has ever been the muse for uh, a work of uh, literature before, but now he is. <laughs> now he is. So thank you, Jimmy Kimmel. Book is out today. Congratulations, Jake. Congrats, uh, guys. Incredible that you've been able to just churn out these books, right? Uh, infuriating, but also infuriating. Incredible. And yes, I feel like a total slacker. Well, but... thank you so much for your support. And thanks for reading them, guys. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Well, be sure to catch Jake on the lead today at 4 p.m. Eastern. And the book is called All the Demons Are Here. It's available today. All right, well, Bud Light is facing more fallout from its partnership with the transgender influencer. How it's hitting the beer brand's bottom line. It's coming up next. I don't give a if you drink Bud Light, Miller Light, Coors Light. It doesn't matter. If you don't like what somebody's selling, just don't go there. This morning, the Bud Light boycott, the one tanking sales by more than 28% over the last four weeks. Well, the brand's the beer brand's partnership with the transgender influence that sparked that culture war, it can be felt pretty much across the country, and especially in Nashville, where the company is facing backlash from both sides. CNN's Ryan Young reports. A culture war is brewing over Bud Light, dividing beer drinkers as much as the country is itself. Unlike anything I'd ever seen. I don't give a if you drink Bud Light, Miller Light, Coors Light, it doesn't matter. If you don't like what somebody's selling, just don't go there. Stop being butthurt about everything that goes on in the world. I celebrated my day 365 of womanhood. The brouhaha stems from Bud Light's short-lived partnership with transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney. Love ya! The fury from the right, enough to dethrone Bud Light as the best-selling beer in America for the first time in two decades. The controversy has taken center stage in Nashville, where two of country music's biggest stars, Garth Brooks and Kid Rock, have bars just steps away from each other on Broadway. What's fascinating to me is that right here on Broadway in Nashville, Tennessee, the culture wars have come down to two big personalities in this town. It illustrates the way the whole country is responding to the transgender acceptance. Garth Brooks says he plans to carry the beer at his yet-to-open bar. I'm a bar owner now. Are we going to have the most popular beers in the thing? Yes. I get it. Everybody's got their opinions. But inclusiveness is always going to be me. A block down Broadway, Kid Rock made his feelings known when he posted this video shooting up cases of Bud Light. Despite the online bravado and talk of a boycott, 
Bud Light was available when CNN stopped in recently. It is not clear if the ban had been lifted or if there ever had been one to begin with. Nashville marketing executive Bill Fletcher says the whole country seems to be engaging in the same heated conversation. With Kid Rock, you have this dark, angry, finger-pointing, shooting a gun at a Bud Light can. And Garth Brooks is, is hey, I love everybody and openness and acceptance. And I think it's what uh, you, you've seen in the country, going back to African-Americans, to gay people. Well, now it's transgender. Here on Broadway, where fans from all around the world come to maybe listen to some music and drink some beer, this Bud Light controversy has left a bad taste in a lot of fans' mouths. It's quite simple. People just don't want it shoved down their throat. No Bud Light. Because it's like, I have grandchildren. We don't need to put that in the young kids' heads. In Chicago, at Two Bears Tavern, a bar that caters to mostly gay patrons, they also feel strongly about not serving Bud Light anymore. But for the opposite reason, they believe the brand left Dylan Mulvaney alone on an island to face a mountain of hate. To be a true ally means that you don't push us behind the scenes and say, well, I'm going to give you some money, but I really don't want you to be front and center or public. But in some Nashville bars, the backlash against Bud Light was hardly felt. We had one guy who said, I refuse to drink that anymore. One guy. And everybody else in the bar kind of rolled their eyes at him. And there were plenty of bar hoppers on Broadway who were simply ready to move on. Let's move on and, and let, hell, let's party. We're in Nashville, damn it. <laughs> Are you not bothered at all by this Bud Light controversy? You're like, ah. No, not at all. I don't give a what they do. <laughs> well, you heard that. She didn't uh, really give a care about this. Look, sometimes you do these stories and people uh, don't want to talk. People were lining up to talk about Bud Light. This really has impacted their, their psyche. 28% of sales have been knocked off. Phil, this was a conversation that we were more than willing to have with a lot of people. I can tell you there was a lot more on the cutting room floor because people had a voice. They had concerns. We even saw people tell others to stop drinking Bud Light while we were out and about in those bars. It was quite fascinating to watch. Indeed. Brian Young, great report and great piece. Thanks, man. Thank you. Well, Ted Cruz is now facing another Democratic challenge for his Senate seat. State Senator Roland Gutierrez, who represents the Uvalde community, just launched his bid, and he joins us live up next. This morning, Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz is facing another Democratic challenger. State Senator Roland Gutierrez became the second high-profile Democrat to launch a bid for Cruz's Senate seat. Gutierrez represents Uvalde, Texas, the same city where a gunman took the lives of 19 elementary school students and two teachers last year. I'm going to stay angry for a long time. You haven't seen what I've seen. You've never seen so much blood in your life. I am angry as hell. And I see these kids when I go to bed at night. I see them in the morning when I wake up. That was this past May, and now Gutierrez is making the massacre at Robb Elementary School his cornerstone message. What happened in Uvalde wasn't just about guns. It was about neglect. The neglect of rural Texas. The neglect of the systems in the state that are supposed to keep us safe. That failure hasn't been isolated. I'm running against Ted Cruz, 
because everything that we've seen in this state has been nothing but taking care of rich people while the poor people, the working class, get screwed over. My father used to tell me, si trabajas duro en este país, este país trabajará por ti. And that's what I promise to do. Work hard at fixing the real problems of today. My name is Roland Gutierrez, proud Texan, and I'm running for United States Senate. Democratic Texas State Senator and candidate for U.S. Senate Roland Gutierrez joins us now. Thanks for your time this morning. So you have been in the Texas State Legislature since 2008. Why now? Why run for Senate now? Well, I'll tell you, it's been a, a very hard year, obviously, since May 24th of last year. Uh, in a lot of ways, it formulated my decision to run because as I, all of that tragedy unfolded and the investigation that ensued, really, I had to sue the government to find out what went on, to see all of the failure that happened. Um, and when you look at that failure, it's not just independent to, to what happened in that tragedy in Uvalde. You saw what happened in Texas when 800 people died in a winter storm that doesn't happen in most states our senator at that time ted cruz decided to run off to cancun while the rest of us had to suffer and grin and bear it um you know nobody expected him to go out on a utility pole we just expected to have some empathy and be here with us and so we've got a, a lot of work to do in texas there's a lot broken from our grid to uh, women's reproductive right issues to our basic infrastructure to just making ends meet. And certainly on gun control, we need to have some significant gun reforms, which by the way, most Republicans agree on in Texas, except for the likes of Ted Cruz and others like him. You say most Republicans agree with it. Texas has some of the, the laxest um, gun regulations on the, on the book. I mean, you can open carry, conceal carry without a permit in Texas. Cruz's allies have already tried to paint your Democratic opponent as out of step with the state on gun rights. Uh, uh, Criticism that's likely to be levied against you, too. I mean, Texas has a lot of enthusiastic gun owners. Most households in Texas own a firearm. How do you convince Texans that there should be stricter gun laws? Yeah, I own, I own quite a few myself. Uh, I don't own a, an AR-15. I don't need one. I'm a believer in the Second Amendment. But what we were asking for was, was to raise the age limit, to create extreme risk protective orders. If you see something and say something, a person's mentally ill and shouldn't have access to guns, we should be able to take those away if they're making threats. Closing the gun show loophole. In the last several polls, 66% of Republican voters said those were good ideas. So I think that the person that's out of touch is, is really Ted Cruz and others like him that refuse to stand up to the NRA to just do the basic to safeguard our children. We've got a lot of work to do in this state, but we have to start with talking about the real problems that are facing us. Yeah, and, and I'm not exactly sure which poll you're referring to there, but I, I want to note that you will be facing off against Congressman Colin Allred. Allred got a head start in the race, raising $6.2 million for his Senate bid in the second quarter. Are you worried that you're at a disadvantage? You know, I'm no stranger to hard work. I've, I've worked hard all my life. I mean, in my private life as an attorney and as an entrepreneur, I've been in construction as well. Um, to my public life in, in public service, volunteering for the state of Texas and the city council of San Antonio before that, we've done incredible work and we've created amazing projects over the 18 years that I've been in public service. We're, we're going to continue that hard work. And I think that when people hear our story and hear where I come from, they're going to hear a message that resonates uh, some commonality in their own lives. We've got to listen to people in a better way. Ted Cruz just simply doesn't do that. 
you, you can't look at your race without looking at, at historically what's happened in Texas. 2018, you had Beto O'Rourke coming closer than expected to winning this race. He shattered Senate campaign fundraising records. But in the end, the Republican grip held out. Cruz won by less than three percentage points. This was the closest Democrats got to winning a Senate race in Texas in more than 30 years. Do you think this race is different? No, well, I think Beto is, first off, he's a great friend. And I think that he did uh, just ama amazing work igniting Texans and provoking them to think about what's truly happening in their lives. We're going to have a similar discussion, but we're going to talk to people from all over the state in, 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 in Spanish and English and everything in between. And from El Paso to East Texas and the Panhandle to Brownsville, we're going to work very hard to try to evoke this sense of change because it really is all about us and what we have to do to create change. You can't just simply scream at the boogeyman and blame everything on immigrants for what's going on in Texas for our failed schools, our failed healthcare systems. People are still making $7.25 an hour having to work two or three jobs. That's certainly not freedom. We have to work at the things that are truly challenging people at home, the out-of-pocket medical care costs, everything, you name it. But Ted Cruz doesn't vote for anything positive. He voted against the infrastructure bill that brought $66 billion in jobs. He voted against the Safer Communities Act. He voted even against the debt ceiling, which would have stabilized our economy. We have to just get rid of these charlatans and start working on the things that matter most to people. Democratic Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez, thank you. Thank you so much. Like father, like son, a new home run derby champ has been crowned. More on this moment and the state of baseball in America. Harry Enten has this morning's number. Coming up, there he is. There he is. Look at him. Look at that dance. Still trying to dance. Well, ahead of tonight's Major League Baseball All-Star Game, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. emerging victorious in the 2023 Home Run Derby in Seattle last night. But despite all the excitement you see there from fans and players, is baseball still America's favorite pastime? CNN senior data reporter Harry Enten is here with this morning number. Harry, answer me. <laughs> no. <Drum roll>. <laughs> <laughs> this morning's number is... 11% because Americans' favorite sport to watch, just 11% said baseball in 2022, down from 39% in 1948. Baseball's not just not number one, which is football. It's arguably number three behind basketball as well. So baseball, while we may love to watch it, at least you and I, Phil, the fact is most Americans are like, nah, whatever. This is why American society maybe, is collapsing. Maybe there's an American right here that doesn't watch it very often. But I do know there's an all-star game tonight. Yep. I know that. And I guess one of the questions is, do you think it's because there's not a lot of like well-known stars that could be feeding into the, you know, baseball's problems? I, I think it absolutely could. So take a look at this. Americans who could identify Yankee greats. Back in 1949, 74% could name Joe DiMaggio. In 1964, 84% of Americans could name Mickey Mantle. Now look at this. Just 29% of Americans know who Aaron Judge is. The fact is, baseball has a lack of stars, at least as far as the American populace is concerned. No, it doesn't. This is, this is, that, that's, 
Shohei Otani is one of the greatest players in history. Mike Trout, Aaron Judge, Lock. This is okay. Fine. I have to ask you this second. I'm angry. There were rule changes. Bump fan engagement. Is it working? I like it. Yeah, I think America like it. Harry. I think it is working, Phil. Look at the game time change down by 26 minutes. The games are 26 minutes faster. Stolen bases up 41%. Base hits up 3%. So the game is becoming more entertaining. Let's see if the fans follow, guys. It's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Phil, Phil, it's okay. We all love you, Phil. We're here Uh, for you. Harry, usually I like you. Now I don't. Harry Hinton, though. Always Don't shoot pleasure, the messenger, Phil. All right, thanks, Harry. Great to see you. Bye. Well, grand jury selection is about to get underway in Fulton County, Georgia. Jurors will hear the case for charges against former President Trump and others for alleged roles in overturning the 2020 election results. Coverage continues on CNN News Central after this break. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.